you're listening to Hear This Idea. So on this podcast, we often choose to talk about technologies which look potentially very dangerous or consequential. And the thought is just that if you want to try to make the world better, then one thing you could focus on is reducing the biggest risks from those technologies. And so it's notable that we haven't yet properly talked about nuclear weapons until this conversation. So in this episode, I spoke with Carl Robichaud, who co-leads Longview Philanthropy's new program on nuclear security. For more than a decade, Carl led nuclear security grant making at the Carnegie Corporation of New York. And before that, he worked at the Century Foundation and the Global Security Institute. And I should also mention that Carl is currently my colleague at Longview. Now, we covered a lot of ground, so we began by talking about what we can learn about nuclear risk from Ukraine. We talked about the significance of the Non-Proliferation Treaty, uh, how verification actually works, what it takes to develop a nuclear weapons program. Um, Then we go over some history, so talk about nuclear near misses in the Cuban Missile Crisis and the Cold War, uh, the Reykjavik Summit, the development of missile defense systems, and also about the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons most recently. And finally, we talk about what's going on with philanthropy aimed at reducing the risks of nuclear war. And I think this is timely because um, about half of all the philanthropic work and spending in this area recently got withdrawn with the MacArthur Foundation winding down its program. So I was especially interested to hear what kind of work philanthropy today can support. As always, if you'd like to skip to sections which stand out, then you can use the uh, chapter markers on your podcast app. And without further ado, here is the episode. I'm a program officer at Longview Philanthropy, and I'm co-leading our nuclear grant-making work. And I've worked on international peace and security issues and nuclear issues for about a decade now. Before that, I was at Carnegie Corporation of New York, where I led our nuclear grant-making program there. And I've joined Longview just in September, and we're building out a team and a grant-making portfolio to try to reduce the risk of nuclear war the risk of nuclear arms races and proliferation, and doing that with attention to what it means for the long-term future. Fantastic. Well, I look forward to hearing a bit more maybe about uh, what your plans are on that front. But I thought maybe a natural place to start, since we're going to be talking about uh, the risks of nuclear war, is the conflict in Ukraine. Um, I'm sure when people think about risks from nuclear war, their minds are going to be Uh, drawn to that. What do you think it means for nuclear risk this century? So Ukraine is really a wake-up call because you have this simmering conflict that's been going on for many years, and it's got a nuclear element to it, but it wasn't on the front pages. And we've assumed that this nuclear status quo is pretty stable. And all of a sudden, we're in this active war. Russia has invaded Ukraine. And we hear about threats to use nuclear weapons. And it reminds us that these weapons are there in a really visceral way. And I think that the risk of nuclear use is a lot higher than it was a year ago, both in the short term while the conflict rages and for the longer term, because this is inevitably going to have implications in terms of arms races and in terms of proliferation pressures. Now, we have a say in what that story looks like. Nothing is inevitable. And I want to emphasize that when I say the risk of nuclear use is higher, I don't mean that it's high. And we could talk about that. We could talk about 
what we think the likelihood of nuclear use are. But um, it's surprising to see a war like this in Europe in 2022. And I think even people who are relatively pessimistic about Russia's intentions with regard to Ukraine were surprised when Russia actually went ahead with its invasion. I mean, I think we saw it coming several months before. It became pretty clear that they were really serious about that. But if you were to look back a year or two ago, most people wouldn't have, most people thought that Putin was bluffing. And I think this is a reminder that we need to be humble about what we know or what we think we know. In retrospect, all the signs are there, but I think it was hard to believe them because those who knew how seriously Russia took the issue of Ukraine and how serious it was about keeping Ukraine in its orbit, they knew that Putin had the motivation to do this. But those analysts also knew that the state of readiness of the Russian forces meant that such an attempt would probably fail. And they believed that even Putin wouldn't place such a foolish bet. So I think there, again, we need to be really cautious about what we think we know and what the likelihood of events are within world politics. Got it. So yeah, one thing I take from that is um, this conflict in part is a kind of news, or at least it's raising some kind of awareness. Uh, and in particular, one article of news is just uh, appreciating that world actors sometimes act irrationally, which is a shame if you're trying to be confident about what they're going to do next in these contexts. And also, um, if you're worrying that they might do very dangerous things. Um, yeah. Irrationality is a tricky word, right? Right. And yeah. it means different things in different contexts. Clearly, Putin and the leaders around him, they have goals, and they thought that the best way to achieve these goals was to invade their neighbor. And it seems foolish, given that the way the, the war has gone so far for them, but we know that human decision-making is fraught with all kinds of failures. We rely on heuristics. We fall prey to all kinds of fallacies. And especially in a decision-making structure in Russia, like, like in Russia, where decision-making authority is really concentrated and you have one man who makes a lot of those decisions and is surrounded by a lot of other yes men and people who may not be telling him the truth all the time, mm -hmm. you really leave yourself open to some bad decisions. And I will say that Putin miscalculated, but I think that the West also miscalculated because whatever we thought we were doing in order to deter Putin wasn't sufficient to deter Putin. And if we thought that providing Putin some outlet for his goals would be successful, we clearly didn't signal that as well. So yeah, there are two approaches to Russia's coercive threats. One is to try to provide some kind of accommodation to Russia, for example, uh, a plan to neutralize Ukraine. The other is to bolster Ukraine and reinforce it against a Russian invasion as a way to deter Russia. 
And we didn't pursue either of those strategies effectively. And that's why we have a war now that is bad for Russia. It's really bad for Ukraine. It's bad for all of Europe. It's bad for the global economy. That seems right. One thing you mentioned there, which I thought you mentioned before and really stood out, is this feature of nuclear risk, which I guess makes it distinctive from something like, let's say, risks from climate change, where uh, so much risk is concentrated in, at least a lot of the time, in the hands of very few people, often people acting under extreme stress over very short periods of time. That means some of these questions become very difficult. Absolutely. And I think that is one of the distinctive things about nuclear risk, is that fundamentally, nuclear weapons are about manipulating risk. Deterrence requires you to create fear in your adversary so that they do what you want them to do or that they don't do what you don't want them to do. Inherently, you've got to create that fear and anxiety or deterrence doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And so we are putting a lot of stress on decision makers and that's all by design because deterrence is ultimately about psychology. And I think it's a system that's really prone to failure. And fortunately, when it comes to nuclear weapons, we haven't had any deterrence failures in the first 77 years of nuclear weapons. We haven't seen nuclear weapons detonated in war since 1945, but we shouldn't take that track record for granted because if you look at some of those incidents, we, we came pretty close. Yeah. One thing that makes me think of, we're thinking about what, the, what is the strategy to maybe make the other actor think that you're likely to uh, retaliate on a first strike. Um, and a lot of the answers are really quite worrying, right? So, you know, one strategy is to somehow credibly signal that you're, you are irrational, right? It's kind of madman mm -hmm. yeah. theory. Um, because that way, you know, the other actor can't trust that you'll do the kind of um, self-preserving thing of not not retaliating. Um, another answer is to show that you have a higher risk tolerance than the other yeah. actor. I guess Thomas Schelling and others were talking about this kind of thought. I think one example is, um, you know, you're you're handcuffed to someone near the edge of a cliff, and the winner is the person who who gives in last. Um, yeah. What do you do? His answer is you just dance closer and closer to the cliff. Right. And maybe in some sense that's, you know, that's a like correct strategy, but it's also a very worrying um, answer when the stakes are so high. So I think Putin miscalculated here about the West's response to Ukraine because he believed that the West would see how much more important Ukraine is to Russia than it is to the West. Mm -hmm. And I think he was manipulating this kind of um, asymmetric stakes mm -hmm. in a way to keep the West out of the war. And it's partially succeeded. We don't see NATO troops on the ground, and we see the West limiting its commitment to Ukraine in some important ways. But I think that he miscalculated the level of resolve, even from countries like Germany that are deeply paired with Russia economically. Germany has been willing to pay a high price in order to continue to support Ukraine throughout this crisis. Mm -hmm. And I think 
you can look at all of this as bargaining Mm -hmm. and bargaining with imperfect information. And as we know, sometimes deals go wrong. Yeah, it's a good answer, I guess. Um, you know, points to a kind of value of committing to some kind of principle of defending your neighbor or forming alliances, even when strictly speaking, you know, it's if you're defending someone else, there's not much in it for you in this kind of very direct sense. But if you can really commit to doing that, then it's unlikely your neighbor will be um, attacked in the first place. Um, yeah. I mean, I think you can understand why Russia thought that Ukraine might be a viable target and that the West wouldn't respond because Ukraine is not part of NATO. Ukraine was not going to join NATO anytime soon. And uh, the US had very clearly limited the types of weapons it was willing to sell to Ukraine and the types of support it was willing to provide. Um, So in terms of nuclear risk, some threats have been exchanged about the use of nuclear weapons um, in the context of Ukraine. I guess I'm curious to zoom in a little bit and hear how you think about um, where the risk is kind of most likely to come from. What what kind of story is most likely to play out where things go wrong? So I think it would be good to go back to the question of why Russia would use nuclear weapons in Ukraine. I think the simple version to that is that Russia would use nuclear weapons if it felt it advance, it would advance its national interest, both in the short term and the long term. Now, we know what Russian nuclear doctrine says. Russian nuclear doctrine prescribes the use of nuclear weapon and limits it to some very specific scenarios uh, in which nuclear weapons are used against Russia or the very existence of the Russian state is at risk, right? Mm -hmm. But I know a lot of Western analysts don't put a lot of weight in that because that's a military doctrine. And ultimately, there is a decision maker in Russia who is not going to be bound by doctrine if he feels like the use of nuclear weapons will help him achieve his goals. Now, use of nuclear weapons for Russia, I think, would be very costly, and it would it would break the nuclear taboo, which I think Russia would not want to do. Um, it would isolate Russia with its with with what are some of the neutral countries right now within this conflict. So you might think about China or India. So it would have costs in that way, and it could result in direct retaliation from NATO forces. And NATO is under no obligation to respond to a nuclear strike against Ukraine, which is not a NATO member. And that's why Russia might think it could get away with a nuclear strike. And at the same time, the US has said that the use of nuclear weapons in Ukraine would result in a catastrophic response. So Russia has to weigh that. And they, uh, are they serious? What does catastrophic mean, et cetera? Um, right now, I don't think Russia is seriously considering the use of nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. I think the scenarios in which Russia would consider the nu- use of nuclear weapons, those are scenarios in which it's losing badly on the battlefield. It's getting pushed back. 
and it's facing a humiliating defeat. And we are closer to that than we were six months ago, but we're not near that point yet, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, the, some people talk about the strategy of escalate to win or escalate to de-escalate. Russia would use nuclear weapons as a signal to the West, don't let this thing get out of control, let's negotiate a settlement, and then Russia can a- achieve something that is short of defeat, would be short of victory, but short of defeat, Putin would remain in power, and it would be a way to create an, an off-ramp from the conflict. I don't think that's a likely scenario right now. And honestly, it comes down to the thinking, Putin's thinking, and the, the thinking among his cadre of decision makers. Yeah, so maybe we could zoom out of Ukraine and think a bit about risks from nuclear weapons uh, more generally over the next few decades. So maybe a first question here is, when, when we're thinking about these risks, who are the main players that we should be thinking about? Well, I think you'd start with the countries that have nuclear weapons, US, Russia, France, China, England. India, Pakistan, Israel, and North Korea. And those are the nine fingers that are on the button right now. But there are a lot of other countries that are involved as well in nuclear risk. And you think about the countries that are under the nuclear umbrella, as it's called. That includes a number of NATO countries, as well as some countries in the Western Pacific. And Every country in the world has a stake in how these weapons are used and in the laws that govern them, because a large nuclear war would not just affect the combatants, it would have cascading effects that would transform the world. Mm -hmm. And I think there was a recognition of that in the 1960s, after the Cuban Missile Crisis, where we came very close to the use of nuclear weapons. So we've had these weapons for 77 years. And so far, they've only spread to nine countries. And I think this is one of those underrated success stories. So if you were to ask someone in the 1950s, how many nuclear weapons do you think they're going to be in 70 years? I don't think many people would answer nine. And I think this is a a case of successful governance, especially the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, which limited proliferation, as well as bilateral diplomacy, especially between the US and the Soviet Union. Even as they were competing in an arms race, they were working to, to limit the spread of these weapons and to avoid the use of these weapons, especially after the Cuban Missile Crisis, which I think was a wake up call for everyone. And so I think it's strange to think about nuclear weapons as a success story. In some ways, they are. There is unfinished business because the status quo is not stable. And mm-hmm. we have a lot of weapons still. We don't have as many as we did during the Cold War. In fact, we had about five times more at the height of the Cold War. That's another success. We've been able to bring the number of weapons down substantially. but. We take that for granted, I think. We assume the status quo is stable and can continue indefinitely. But there 
are many ways in which this this fabric is pulling apart at the seams. Okay, yeah. I'd love to zoom in on that. So you say the status quo is not stable. I can imagine lots of ways that might be true, but what did you have in mind then? So first, you have an international treaty in the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, which fundamentally separates states into two categories, the nuclear haves and the nuclear have-nots. So five states are permitted to have nuclear weapons and retain them indefinitely, and they need to make certain promises to move towards the cessation of the arms race and move eventually towards full and complete disarmament. But there are no procedures or rules in place for how that should occur. It essentially locks in this nuclear monopoly for a small number of states. And everyone else has to accept that. That doesn't seem like a sustainable situation for the long term, and it's created a lot of, a lot of tensions and pressures. And you know, we know that there were 29 countries that have pursued nuclear capabilities at one part or another. 19 countries had pretty serious nuclear weapons programs. Oh, wow. Only nine of those have succeeded. But um, you know, these, these are countries that you don't think today of having nuclear weapon, weapons programs like Sweden and Switzerland and Spain and Taiwan, South Korea. Etc. And mm-hmm. yeah, as, as well as countries like South Africa, which gave up its nuclear weapons. How many countries um, developed and then subsequently gave up nuclear capabilities? So South Africa is the key example. After the apartheid government fell, they gave up their nuclear weapons, which was a, a relatively small program. Yeah. And you also have the post-Soviet states of Kazakhstan, Belarus, and Ukraine, which hosted Soviet nuclear weapons and afterwards gave those weapons up. And Ukraine gave up the Soviet nuclear weapons that were based on its territory in return for a security assurance from Russia, the United States, France, and England, a Budapest memorandum that we're going to give these things up. We want economic aid. We want support. And we want to promise that you're not going to invade us. So Russia has violated that with its recent invasion. And that's one of the reasons why people believe that ensuring that Russia doesn't succeed in this war is really important from a non-proliferation standpoint. Yeah, so maybe I could try saying that back to make sure I'm getting it. So you know, the question here is, is in what sense could um, the status quo here be unstable? And, you know, one sense is that in a way we are kind of lucky that only, you know, nine states have a nuclear weapons program. And that is, you know, largely un- kind of underpinned by this international uh, regime, by the non-proliferation treaty and a couple of subsequent treaties where, you know, countries are kind of separated into countries with a program and without. And the agreement is not to um, start a program. And there is some kind of, you know, quid pro quo there where, you know, non-nuclear states get some kind of protection in return. But that is a kind of fragile state of affairs where, you know, there is a certain amount of resentment, you could imagine, from non-nuclear countries who feel like they've been locked out um, by this kind of arrangement. 
And you can see that maybe coming kind of being a little unfrayed by Russia. Also, on the other hand, you know, some states have given up programs. So you, you can have movement on either end, but it seems especially kind of unstable in the direction of states trying to um, maybe get get a nuclear program. Does that sound right? I think it I think it is fragile. And the reason it's fragile is that it's not that hard to build a nuclear program mm. and to develop a nuclear weapon. Basically, there are 20-something countries that have an advanced military industrial base and have nuclear power plants or other nuclear infrastructure that would give them access to fissile material. We have a safeguard system in place with the IAEA to monitor that, to make sure that civilian nuclear material is not used for military purposes. But we know that those protections are imperfect. And a state could say, as North Korea has done, that we don't want to be part of that agreement anymore. We're leaving and we're building nuclear weapons. And the way the laws work, they permit you to use civilian nuclear technology legally right up to the point where you're building a bomb. And this is the loophole that Iran has exploited to get very close to building a nuclear bomb if it decides to cross that threshold. And so the the laws and rules in place are not sufficient. What The reason we only have nine nuclear armed states is because of the diplomatic processes behind that. Basically, the United States has pressured its allies. The Soviet Union pressured its allies not to acquire these weapons and offered some security assurances in return. But all of those arrangements are fragile because they depend on a, an IOU, essentially. You are making a promise. And if that promise is no longer credible, you could see countries deciding to go ahead and um, cross that line. And you hear talk now about whether South Korea, for example, would go ahead and acquire nuclear weapons. They're certainly capable of it. Japan has a lot of separated fissile material on its territory that if it chose to, it could use for a nuclear bomb. There's a strong taboo against nuclear weapons in Japan. I don't think that's likely, but it's certainly plausible, especially on longer time horizons. You hear talk about Saudi Arabia, for example, and their ability to acquire a nuclear bomb from Pakistan. So we shouldn't take any of this for granted. And um, you mentioned the IAEA there. And I, as yes. far as I understand, which isn't very far, they um, are a body which tries to help on monitoring and verification. I'm curious, just more generally, how is, just beyond kind of diplomacy, what does kind of verification look like? How much is it possible to know about um, whether states are trying to acquire weapons? Technically, it's 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 possible to know a great deal. Mm -hmm. And if the IAEA were able to put in place the types of intrusive safeguards that are technically possible, mm -hmm. their nuclear forensics are first rate. And you can do a lot to monitor and verify the absence of illicit activity, at least at declared facilities. The problem is that the IAEA doesn't have access to everything that's going on in these countries. And the board of governors of the IAEA is very careful not to give the IAEA too much authority 
for fears of violating countries' sovereignty. About 15 years ago, there was an undisclosed facility in Syria believed to be a plutonium facility built by North Korea for Syrian use. Uh, Israel bombed that facility, and the IAEA asked to come in and inspect it, and Syria dragged its feet and eventually dragged its bulldozers over the whole area in order to hide any evidence that might have been there. And so we will never really know exactly what went on at that facility. And you know, we know the story of Iraq, and the IAEA was correct that Iraq did not have a nuclear weapons program. But the IAEA also was not able to persuade the world that Iraq didn't have a nuclear weapons program um, because it didn't have access to everything. And it was at the, the, the whims of Saddam Hussein and his team what they allowed the IAEA to see. So techni technically, it's a great agency. They've got great people working there, uh, courageous, competent people for the most part. But they have limits on what it is they can do. And it's only going to get harder as mm -hmm. technology allows people to build things faster and with greater precision. And uh, you know, clearly, verification capabilities are increasing as well. But if the IAEA is not allowed to use those, it, uh, it's got its hands tied. Okay, I get it. Maybe this is getting too into the weeds, but I'm curious. Four countries which do let the IAEA um, to you know look around and um, monitor and verify that country. Um, what kind of technological means do they have, and what are they what are they looking for? What are the indications? Yeah, so primarily it's an accountancy role. So they are keeping track of the fissile material in these countries and ensuring that none of it goes astray. Yep. There are also, there's the potential for additional inspections that would be more intrusive. And there's a requirement that all declarations be not just correct, but complete. Mm -hmm. And that's the hard part, is for the IAEA to be able to verify the completeness of what it's looking at. Because, for example, in Iraq, they were able to take a look at all of Iraq's known facilities in the early 1990s. And then after the Gulf War, they realized that there was a hidden facility just over the berm that the IAEA had never been allowed to visit. Yep. And so this led to calls for the additional protocol and what's sometimes called the state-level concept, which would allow for a more complete and holistic picture of everything that's going on within a country's nuclear program. But that's controversial, and it's being held up by countries like Russia and like Iran that prefer to have more sovereignty and not have the IAEA mucking around in their business. Okay, I see. And um, what about testing? I'm kind of naively assuming that uh, if a state wants to acquire weapons, then First of all, it needs to test them. And second of all, it's very high, very difficult to hide evidence. 
Yeah, exactly. So you have the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty Organization. Now, the the treaty has not entered into force. It has a very high bar for entering into force, which requires ratification by a large number of states. Some of those states, including the United States, have not ratified the treaty. Mm-hmm. And so it's not, it has not entered into force, but there's this organization in Vienna that continues to operate, a lot of technological prowess, very important mission, and they're very good at detecting nuclear tests and mm-hmm. separating out um, the types of tremors that would be generated from a nuclear test from the types of tremors that would be generated from an earthquake. And... I think you talk to most technical people, they have a high degree of confidence that the CTBTO could detect covert tests. At least any kind of explosive nuclear testing that crosses a certain threshold so as to be useful, militarily useful. So any country's first nuclear test would definitely be detectable by the CTBTO. The question is, would some sophisticated tests by advanced nuclear nations like Russia or China or the United States at the subcritical level, could those be detected? And I think they could, but there's less confidence in that. It sounds like, at least to some extent, there is a kind of offense-defense race where presumably it will become easier to more covertly um, manufacture weapons. But at the same time, it might also become, and it has already become, easier to uh, get indications that a state is trying to acquire weapons. Yeah, I think that's right. And especially when you consider the full range of information that's available now. Mm -hmm. You have extraordinary overhead imagery you have mm-hmm. right. yeah, yeah. all kinds of signals intelligence and other forms of data that can be used. Now, the IAEA is limited in its use of these capabilities, but nation states use them regularly to try to understand whether a, a particular country is trying to acquire nuclear weapons. So I think there is an arms race there. And I feel confident that we're not going to wake up one day and discover that some country that nobody has been talking about has a nuclear weapon. Mm-hmm. I think the more likely route to, to a new nuclear weapon state is the one that Iran is taking, where it uses permitted technologies to come very close to I see. a nuclear bomb and then crosses that threshold uh, when, it, when it wants to. Uh, Now, I I I want to be clear. I think that Iran has crossed crossed the line and has engaged in some prohibited activities in the past. And that's how they came to this negotiation and led to the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, which puts very stringent inspections on Iran, even beyond what is required by the IAEA. But Got it. The broader point is that a country acting like Iran 
could follow the rules up until the point where they wanted to cross that threshold and build a nuclear weapon. Okay. And it sounds like um, up to that point, to be confident that such a country hasn't crossed the threshold, that country needs to submit to um, verification measures, to inspections. It's still yes. quite difficult to know from the outside. Um, yeah. Got it. Now, I guess we were talking about offensive and defensive um, technologies. I was originally going to say this is a kind of defensive technology, but I suppose it's a little complicated whether this actually makes the world safer. But I was going to ask about um, missile defense technologies um, or anti-ballistic missile capabilities, I guess. Um, yeah, I'm curious like what the state of the art looks like for um, these kinds of defenses, whether they've been tested, whether they're likely to work. Um, yeah, what's what's going on? <laughs> Yeah, this is a controversial topic, and I think it's one of the factors that could drive this new arms race that I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. um, the United States in particular has been developing increasingly sophisticated missile defenses to protect the U.S. homeland from an incoming attack, mm -hmm. and that is inherently a good thing, but it has downsides because if you have a shield that's threatening the viability of an adversary's nuclear arsenal, mm -hmm. then they are at your mercy in a way. So it has this inherently offensive dimension to it because you could use your nuclear weapons first with impunity if you had a sufficiently effective shield. Mm -hmm. Now, the, the current U.S. missile defenses are really limited. They're not that effective. They're very expensive. We don't have that many interceptors. Their success rate is somewhere around 50-50 in tests that are pre-planned. And so we don't know what, those, what that success rate would be in real-world conditions. But they have gotten better, and every year they continue to get better, and the U.S. has thrown a lot of money at this problem. It has bipartisan support in Congress. And so there is a couple risks here. One is you may have a false sense of security. And from some of the statements that President Trump made when he was in office, it was clear that he either believed or he wanted us to believe that he thought that these missile defenses were much more effective than they actually were. Mm -hmm. And that could lead you to take risks that result in a nuclear exchange. The other risk is that the other side sees you building a shield. They're not going to stand by and allow their nuclear arsenal to be negated. They're going to try to find ways around that. And that's exactly what we see with Russia and China and their development of new weapon systems that are specifically designed to get around US missile defenses. So you talk about nuclear powered cruise missiles or hypersonic glide weapons or uh, the status six Poseidon nuclear powered hypercavitating torpedo. Right? These are weird esoteric systems 
that someone pulled off the shelf and just built this crazy thing or is planning to build this crazy thing. I mean, what they have in common is that they are designed to get around U.S. missile defenses. Does Russia have reason to fear U.S. missile defenses? From where I'm sitting, it looks like paranoia. The U.S. systems are not large. They're not very capable. And makes you wonder, what's the, what's the reasoning in Russia? Russia has 1,500 deployed nuclear warheads on the strategic level. It has 1,000 tactical nuclear weapons. It doesn't seem like they would need to add to that arsenal to have security. So I think it's a complicated story. And part of it is maybe they're, they're, they're building up some bargaining chips to trade away. Part of it might be right, a military industrial complex run amok. Mm-hmm. I think China is a more complicated case because China has had for a long time a very small nuclear arsenal. And mm, okay. this has been sort of a mystery as to why this large power, even as it was developing a very capable military and a large economy, why it had such a small nuclear arsenal, somewhere in the range of 200 nuclear weapons, and only 50 of those or so could reach U.S. territory. And a lot of people pointed out China's doctrine of minimum deterrence, no first use, traced it back to Mao's vision of nuclear weapons. He saw nuclear weapons as these paper tigers that were not really worth investing in because you could just destroy a couple of an adversary's cities and they would have to submit. And something changed because we now see China building a lot of nuclear weapons and at a surprising pace. So the latest Pentagon estimate is that China has about 400 nuclear weapons now and got there a lot faster than people suspected. And the expectation is within the next decade, they will go to somewhere around a thousand nuclear weapons. And this reflects a major change. Yeah. I was going to ask, what what do you think changed that? I think missile defense is a big part of this. They see U.S. missile defenses and their improving capabilities, and they don't want to be caught by surprise. There's this great fear of strategic surprise. So, you know, all of a sudden, the U.S. has 50 interceptors of type 1.0, and next thing you know, they have 50 interceptors of type 2.0, and then next thing you know, they have 1,000 interceptors of type 3.0, and China doesn't want to be on the wrong end of that equation. And there is also reason to believe that China would be vulnerable to a very effective, precise U.S. first strike using nuclear, conventional, and cyber weapons. And, you know, I don't think that anyone in the U.S. is planning this. It's not something, not an attack the U.S. intends to carry out. Mm -hmm. But if you look at U.S. capabilities in the way that the precision of U.S. conventional forces and nuclear forces has increased mm-hmm. really substantially as a result of the digital revolution. And you think about all of that revolutionary revolution in military affairs, um, the 
precision weapons coupled with electronic warfare, cyber warfare. The US way of war is to try to blind the adversary, to go in as soon as possible, knock out their communications. Exactly. And that's the scenario I think China needs to plan for, even if they don't think it's likely, because you don't keep your job very long as a nuclear planner, if you don't plan for the worst case scenario. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And you have to look at US capabilities, not just its intent. And you have to assume that those capabilities are actually better than, you know, what the, what, what they look like on paper. Yeah. So I guess on the topic of missile defense, have you heard of, um, project retro, Carl? No, I don't know about this. Okay. This is a, this is a side note, I guess. I was reading the Doomsday Machine, the Ellsberg book. Yeah. And Daniel Ellsberg uh, of Pentagon Papers fame, he was working at, at the Rand Corporation, right? This is at early 60s or maybe 1960. And I think um, the US military, maybe the Air Force, had asked them to evaluate this plan that they had, had got fairly far along that, you know, different layers of, of planning. Um, it was a missile defense plan. And here's, here's the plan. You take about a thousand... Um, ICBM rockets. I think they were Atlas rockets, right? And you strap them to the ground horizontally and you point them in the opposite direction to the Earth's rotation, right? And then the plan is that when when you detect um, an attack, you know, you have your early warning system, gives you the warning, then you, you know, you press fire on these rockets and because they're strapped to the Earth, they slow down the Earth's rotation just enough that the presumably Soviet missiles overshoot their target and, you know, fall in the sea wow. or whatever. That <laughs> is a that? wild scheme. I had not heard about that one. Yeah, I just had no idea. It's just kind of crazy that that, that like got beyond, you know, like someone just having an idea and then immediately, immediately realized it would never work. And of course, <laughs> for listeners, it, it does not work. You need something like, you know, a billion. No, no. no, I the earth is The earth is a pretty big object. <laughs> yes, citation needed. Um, citation needed. Yeah, there's a, there's a history of DARPA that I read recently that was uh, the Imagineers of War. It talks about a lot of other harebrained schemed like, schemes like these, some of which got funding. Great. So there's a lot to unpack there. But, you know, I guess one piece is we were talking about missile defense and at least i might naively think well we have this you know technology to defend against these terrible weapons presumably that will make the world safer and more stable um but if you just think about the response you know just beyond the kind of immediate effects well um other actors might compensate with new weapons technologies but also more crudely you know if i if my adversary um can defend four out of every five weapons I, I send their way, well, that's a reason maybe for me to make or at least send five times as many weapons. Exactly. And maybe that kind of exactly. dynamic is, is playing out with, um, with China. Um, well, we saw that dynamic during the arms race in the Cold War. Right. Yeah, yeah. Was a sense of vulnerability fueled a dramatic increase in weapons. And so the, the U.S. would build more weapons to try to be able to hit the targets it needed to hit in the Soviet Union in order to reduce its vulnerability. And it was this game that got out of control because the Soviets knew they needed to build more weapons in order to be resilient to that. Mm -hmm. The Cold War example, 
tell me if I'm wrong, but I have some picture that the Soviets maybe overestimated the capabilities of the kind of um, Star Wars idea and kind of overcompensated for that by by um, adding to their stockpiles, whereas really Star Wars never yeah. became very effective. You're, I mean, you're absolutely right. Star Wars was this harebrained scheme that <laughs> even the people who were working on it didn't really think it was working. I mean, they were happy to cash the checks, um, but a lot of them were very skeptical of the pursuits that they they had. Now, that doesn't mean that missile defense could never work. And there are certain approaches to missile defense that might be pr more promising. If we were ever able to master boost phase missile defense, for example, to take out a missile on the launch pad or in the initial stages when it's moving relatively slowly, or okay. uh, directed energy, you know, lasers or microwaves to, to fry components, that's something that could work. You know, space-based missile defense is something that I'm worried that people will take off the shelf and try to master because I think it's likely to lead down some really risky paths. But, uh, you know, everything old is new again. And as we enter this uneasy phase of great power competition in which Russia is in Ukraine, China is threatening Taiwan, the U.S. is built has a massive military with incredible capabilities. We're in a slow motion arms race and you could see Russia dusting, dusting off some of these crazy Cold War concepts and putting them into operation. And you see China revising its nuclear arsenal and going from a very small minimum deterrent up to something that will be on par with the current arsenals mm -hmm. in Russia and the United States within a decade or two. It's a different world. And we can't assume that this relatively benign status quo that has persisted since the early 1990s is going to be with us into the future. I see. And just quickly on China, um, I was wondering what are the reasons for being confident that China looks set to increase its stockpiles? In other words, what is the kind of evidence to think that it's likely to, to do that? China is not very transparent with regard to its nuclear arsenal. So they haven't said that they're increasing in this way. They've said nothing. And the only evidence that we have is what has been stated by the US intelligence community. And so you always have to take that with a grain of salt. And I think people have been skeptical in the past about some of these worst case scenario estimates. But all that changed about a year ago when a group of open source analysts using commercial satellite imagery noticed a new missile field in China with something like another 100 missiles that were under preparation. And none of China's explanations for what this facility is are nearly plausible. Mm -hmm. And so we're in a new world now where citizen journalism and citizen geospatial analysis, social media analysis, can gather information and add to the debate. It was the Federation of American Scientists 
and the Monterey Institute for International Studies, Middlebury College, that those researchers made this finding public. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really changed the, the tenor of the conversation. Wow. Okay. And I suppose we might expect that to happen more in the future is this kind of open source intelligence. Um, yeah. If you look today, the, the types of commercial satellite imagery that you can buy off the shelf hmm. for a few thousand dollars, that the quality of those images is better than what the best Cold War right. satellite imagery looked like. Uh-huh. And so anything visible from the sky it's very hard to conceal it now. You can be do it. You can do it. You can find ways to to hide things. And it's, again, it's this cat and mouse game. Mm-hmm. But uh, and, and you know that's just what's available commercially. You have to assume that the intelligence agencies have things that are an order of magnitude better, for sure, um, and including overhead imagery that can penetrate underground. The same technology that's used to uncover new archaeological discoveries can be used to look at buried and hardened facilities in different countries. Mm-hmm. And that's not even getting into some of the cyber you know, cyber intrusion, signals intelligence, and other things. So Got it. I think we should not as, we, you know we should not assume we should assume that it's going to be easier to find things going forward. Yep. The question is whether it's also easier to build things. And on right, balance, it goes back to this offense defense race. Yeah. Got and it. part of the problem is, you know, you might find something, you might know about it, but what are you going to do about it? Right. And that's what's happened in Iran. We've known that they have all these facilities, including some facilities that they had not disclosed to the IAEA. Yep. But are you going to use military strikes against those? And what what law has Iran violated at this point? So, I see. And um, I will say, by the way, the um, the idea of being able to penetrate underground with overhead imagery. I'm assuming this is just from orbit, like from satellites. Um, that's why I like satellites no or planes. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then you also mentioned various kinds of cyber intrusion. That was actually something I was keen to ask i guess there's a actually a few questions here um but maybe the first one is whether it's harder or easier to kind of find out what other actors are doing because of cyber hacking whether there are any examples of that and then also like you know hacking the bomb type worries they feel kind yeah. of separate in my mind if that makes, makes sense they are separate i think there's two separate categories of cyber and they overlap and one is essentially cyber espionage yeah and I think that if you look at the Iran situation, we had cyber espionage in place, which allowed us to, I say we, the United States had cyber espionage in place that allowed it to track developments, including keystroke tracking that was recording what the Iranian analysts at facilities were typing into their keyboard. Okay. And so that's Does this have to do with the, Stuxnet or was that a separate thing? It's separate actually. Yeah. Okay. So All right. It does have to do with Stuxnet in that sure, that yeah. prompted uh US and Israel allegedly to mm-hmm. implant this virus 
into the centrifuge facility. And it was a very sophisticated virus that was not easily detectable by Iran because it didn't just explode things. Instead, it made the centrifuges covered its tracks. Yeah. So it, it could, at first, it looked like it was just typical technical errors. And it set back the Iran nuclear program by months or years, depending on who you talk to. However, because of that program, Iran eventually realized what, what was up. And it wiped all of its computers, installed new systems, and implemented much more rigorous cybersecurity around its facilities. I see. And in so doing, they wiped away all of the the, the key logging and other uh, espionage systems right, that the U.S. had in place at that point. Presumably, the U.S. came up with some other ways to try to get into those systems. But again, it's one of these cat and mouse systems, and we, you know, you never really know because it's all classified. The U.S. still to this day denies that there ever was Stuxnet, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a there's a great movie about this called Zero Days that gets into that. Okay, great. We'll link to that. I also remember yeah. reading this um, post somewhere. It was a response to the question, what is the most sophisticated piece of software ever written? And someone had t- told the story of Stuxnet in, you know, quite briefly. And it just kind of blew my mind. So I'll, I'll link to that yeah. as well. Yeah, I think it, 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 it was a really sophisticated piece of malware. Mm. And it was introduced through an industrial control system. So it could actually, it spread outside of the sandbox, which is why it was ultimately detected. Mm-hmm. So their their attack vector made it infect a lot of other things. I see. So we're talking about cyber, and you mentioned there's really two parts yeah. to this. The first is cyber espionage, um, signals intelligence. Would it be right to say that on balance, the fact that... Um, I suppose the entire world is more open and vulnerable to various kinds of cyber espionage. This means it might be harder to um, carry out some kind of covert um, project, whether it's nuclear or otherwise. I think so. If uh, if intelligence agencies know where to look, they have a lot of capabilities to get a, get a hold of information, but. Part of it depends on whether that information receive, reaches decision makers in a timely way and whether it's actionable. Yeah. And I guess it's kind of on that point, you know, it's, I guess, worth noting that, like you mentioned, some very important um, intelligence has just come from uh, open source, such as yeah. like academics rather than um, yeah. uh, governmental intelligence. Yeah. I mean, a um, lot of this stuff was hidden in plain sight. And mm-hmm. one of the, one of the ways to determine which countries were pursuing dangerous dual-use nuclear research was to look at the publications by key scholars. Because to get academic advancement within these countries, they would need to publish. So they would publish their research on this. And if you knew which journals to look in, you could find the scholars, and then you could create a a network map of which scholars were working with which people 
Whoa. And that helped to uncover some of the risky research being wow. done by Iraq, Iran, other countries. Okay, got it. So that is the cyber uh, espionage and intelligence side of things. I guess when we're talking about cyber, the other part we might worry about is the more direct risk from the possibility of hacking into a nuclear weapons system yeah. Um, yeah. and and triggering it. Um, yeah, I'm actually completely in the dark here about how like how real that risk is. Yeah, you're um, not alone. I mean, I think that nobody <laughs> nobody knows the answer to this as it pertains to every nuclear armed state. And the people who know about the cyber resilience and vulnerabilities of their own systems are not going to talk about them. So it's all speculation. Now, we do know in 2013, the Defense Science Board, the United States Defense Science Board, claimed that all weapon systems, including nuclear weapons, were capable of being digitally penetrated. So this is uh, something that has been publicly revealed, and that was nine years ago. Now, they went ahead, I'm sure, and patched those specific vulnerabilities, but it shows that this can happen even in very sophisticated nuclear weapon states. And as the U.S., continues to upgrade its arsenal and its nuclear command and control from a uh, you know, 1960s and 1970s technology to today's technology, um, that creates new vulnerabilities unless you're really careful. And so you need to be cautious about everything from the very chips you use to mm -hmm. which, which technicians have access to parts of the facility. And uh, there, you know, there were specific vulnerabilities that were revealed around the U.S. submarine force. I think they, again, these things have since been patched. But the, you know, there are a lot of known unknowns out there. I see. Am I right in thinking that there is, you know, at least a sense in which that there are, you know, air gaps in place, at least say for US command and control and these vulnerabilities are kind of more sideways vulnerabilities rather than just these nuclear weapon systems are connected to the internet. Yeah, they're not connected to the internet and the goal is for them not to be connected to the internet. For sure. But there are still ways into air-gapped systems. Yeah, this is a bit of an incidental comment, but I think there are interesting lessons here for when it comes to thinking about AI risks in general, right? Yeah. Where you have these kind of obvious somewhat naive solutions like placing placing in some kind of air gap but then you forget that you know technicians need to go and um install things and you can maybe um have some influence over which chips get inside these weapons exactly and unless you control your entire supply chain your entire maintenance operation um there are going to be vulnerabilities and in principle you can do that but it's very expensive and in the U.S., government contracts are awarded to the lowest bidder. And in other countries as well, there are opportunities to give a contract to the defense minister's brother-in-law, right? So mm -hmm. you may, countries may not always take the, more, the most secure approach that they can. For sure. And 
If you were to design a command and control infrastructure from the ground up where your only goal was that it would fail safe every time and that you would never have any false alarms or Mm -hmm. false launches, that you would have maximum reliability, that system would look very different from the systems we have in place today. Because these are systems of systems that were built over time, and they were built with considerations of cost in mind. They were built with considerations of interoperability, because you have nuclear command and control that relies on components that are also used for conventional warfighting and conventional command. So there, we know that there are failure points and risks within this system. And we tolerate them because it would be very costly to redo the whole system with maximum reliability in mind. Mm-hmm. I hope it never matters. But if there ever is an acute nuclear crisis, it's likely to take place in the context of a conventional war in which you have systems that are going to go down. They're going to go down because adversaries are going to, co- they're going to attack your communications infrastructure. They're going to attack your satellites and your radar. They're going to be in your cyber systems. So in an intense conventional war, are we going to be able to rely 100% on the nuclear deterrent only being used when it's supposed to be used? I hope the answer to that question is yes, but I don't think anyone has confidence in that answer. Anyone who tells you they know for sure is speculating. I think in the case of the United States, this is a country that has spent billions of dollars to upgrade this infrastructure. Probably it's pretty strong infrastructure. I am especially concerned about China or Russia or North Korea, because if their command and control breaks down and they launch a nuclear weapon inadvertently or by a commander that's not authorized to do it, makes a mistake, jumps the gun, that is a problem for everyone alive on this planet. And so we are only as we are only as safe as the weakest link in that chain. And I think the you know the the solution is not to get into crises with nuclear armed states and to try to reduce our reliance on nuclear weapons in every case. Mm-hmm. But we are headed towards an increasingly competitive world with U.S. Russia, U.S. China, India, Pakistan, U.S. North Korea. These are all nuclear dyads where there's going to be a high level of competition and perhaps war. And that's something that we should do everything in our power to ensure that if that conflict happens, that it doesn't go nuclear. Okay, so for context for listeners, um, this is the first part of the second half of the recording. So we stopped and started again. And if I'm remembering right, where we left off, we were talking 
about something like uh, near misses and points of failure and the various ways in which something can go wrong and lead to the even unintended use of nuclear weapons. And one pretty obvious case study in near misses is the Cuban Missile Crisis. So I figured we could kick off there. Yeah, I think that's a great place to start. Super. And I think what's great about the Cuban Missile Crisis is that we have a lot of documentation on it. So we can go back and we understand what the participants knew at the time. And then we also have more information that was learned later. So things that the participants didn't know. And because of that depth of analysis, you can actually see the different potential points of failure that occurred during that crisis and that unfortunately are likely to replicate themselves if we have future crises. Mm -hmm. Got it. And was it like there was some kind of build up to a single moment of heightened risk or was it yeah. more like multiple yeah. different yeah incidents? so you had this you had this build up the US in 1962 the US imagery analysts discovered suspicious activities so they realized that the soviets are deploying missiles to cuba and once those mu missiles are operational they could hit much of the east coast including washington in a matter of minutes so this is a crisis the US is fortunate that it detected those missiles in time and that it also had intelligence that they weren't yet operational. So there was this very brief window to act. So Kennedy gathered his advisors together. They called it the XCOM or the Executive Commission Committee of the National Security Council. And basically all of his advisors recommend a military response, either a preemptive military strike or a full-scale invasion of Cuba. Mm -hmm. And Kennedy was nervous that this would spiral into a nuclear war. And he actually didn't take the advice of his military advisors and of the XCOM. And instead, he ordered a quarantine or an embargo of Cuba that would prevent further material from arriving at the island. And so this is what you often hear about the 13 days of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Mm -hmm. And so this crisis played out over that time period. The Soviet ships approached that embargo line, and ultimately they turned back. So at this moment of truth, Khrushchev blinked as the narrative went, and the missiles were removed. We later learned, of course, that the U.S. had struck a secret deal to remove the Jupiter missiles that were deployed in Turkey, and that from the Russian perspective had precipitated the whole crisis. Sure. And so that's the story that we know for 40 years, right? Mm -hmm. But it's not the whole story. Is after the fall of the Berlin Wall, the Soviet archives opened up. And historians scoured newly released documents. When I was at Carnegie Corporation, we had a grantee of the National Security Archive. They held an oral history workshop, in which they presented documents to people who were there in the room, and they captured firsthand recollections. Oh. And what we learned was that the crisis was actually worse than we had thought. So during the time of the crisis, Kennedy had 
said that the risk of a nuclear war was somewhere between one and three and even. I think How do we George, know that he said that? Uh, we have tapes of the whole thing. So okay. he, the, this was the White House or? conversations were recorded. I see. Yeah. And because it's 60 years in the past, those were released. You also have uh, various accounts, like the account of Robert Kennedy, which was very much a self-serving account of what transpired in those 13 days mm-hmm. um, that uh, painted him and his brothers as, as, as the, the voice of reason during the crisis. We know that that's not entirely the, the case. And actually, it was Adelie Stevenson, who was one of the key voices of reason um, throughout this. But um, we, have a, we have a lot of information about what happened, including from the Soviet archives. One of the things we learned from the Soviet archives is that they actually had nuclear weapons on the ground that were active and ready to be used. So you'll recall the crisis was precipitated by the longer range nuclear missiles that could have hit the United States. Those were not yet operational, but the local tactical short range nuclear weapons were on the ground they were operational. They were in the hands of the Soviet commanders on the ground and would have been used against a U.S. invading force if Kennedy had authorized that invasion as had been recommended by okay. his security advisors. I see. So the stakes were higher. The stakes were higher in that than we thought. Okay. So that is one way the stakes were, I guess higher than we had thought um, in light of what we kind of learned after decades after the Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, yeah, do you, do you know about re- the submarine? Okay, I was actually going to ask you about that. Please yeah. please tell me. Okay, so this is wild. Um, you have this Soviet fleet that's trying to break the embargo and accompanying them is a diesel-powered submarine. Uh, several of them, right? Each is armed with a nuclear-tipped torpedo. Okay. This is not known at the time. Huh. As they approach the blockade, so the U.S. destroyers start dropping depth charges to force them to the surface to enforce this quarantine. Got it. And uh, then, they did not know that the nuclear-tipped torpedoes were on board when they were dropping right, the depth charges. Exactly. Yeah. So these submarines were cut off from all surface communication. So they had no idea what was happening above them. And the captain of the submarine believes that a war might have already had started. So he actually orders the use of the nuclear torpedo. And he believes that a war might have already started because I guess the only thing he's seeing is a bunch of depth charges around him. No other information. Kind of reasonable to presume. Yeah. Yeah. And... Normally, there are two officers on a Soviet submarine. Both need to agree to launch the the nuclear torpedo before nuclear weapons are used. Okay. And so he has to get authorization from the political officer who agrees to launch the torpedoes. I see. The reason the torpedoes weren't launched is something of a historical fluke, which is that the Commodore of the fleet, Vasily Arkhipov, happens to be on board this submarine. And okay. because he's the Commodore, he outranks him. And so the captain needs to 
get approval from Vasily Arkhipov. Vasily Arkhipov does not approve the launch, says we should wait. And okay, that's why so, those nuclear tip torpedoes were not used in the conflict. Wow. So to say that back, Savitsky, the captain of the submarine, mm -hmm. uh, he wanted to use these nuclear torpedoes, um, would have made that order. Ordinarily, that would have been enough mm -hmm. for that order to um, be triggered. By some fluke, it turned out that in this case, he needed to seek approval from um, his superior, who was also by chance on that submarine. This person is Vasily Arkhipov. He decided to contradict the order and mm -hmm. not to fire the torpedoes. Yes. So, okay, a lot of questions. Maybe one is in that event where the torpedoes would have been fired. Maybe it's an obvious question, but what 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 could have happened? Well, they would have taken out one or more of the U.S. destroyers in the first use of nuclear weapons since 1945. Mm -hmm. We don't know what would have happened next. Mm -hmm. um, thousands of U.S. service members might have lost their lives, and there would be incredible pressure to retaliate. So it's not clear what would have happened next. It might have escalated or it might not have. For sure. But I guess it's, yeah, reasonable to assume that given tensions were so high, there was like a not insignificant chance of escalation. That's right. And I think you need to be careful with any of these near miss stories, right? Because after the fact, people might have an incentive to make it seem like they came closer than they came or that they didn't come as close as they came. There are political pressures that could cut both ways. And Hindsight is always twenty twenty. So we should be skeptical of all of these stories. The ones that are more credible to me are those that are backed by evidence. And the archival evidence is pretty strong on some of these points. I'm actually not sure the, the strength of the ar archival evidence on the Arkhipov story, because I think it relies on um, the, the actors recounting this story. Do we know any other near-miss stories or potential near-miss stories from the Cuban Missile Crisis? Yeah. So we know that an invasion would have been pretty devastating and would likely have resulted in the use of nuclear weapons. Uh -huh. But it's interesting that this supposedly safer option this quarantine also had this risk related to the submarine. And there were other risks too during these 13 days. Okay, so we know, for example, at the height of the crisis, an American U-2 surveillance plane that was piloted by Rudolph Anderson Jr. was shot down. So okay. after that happened, milita Kennedy's military advisors called for airstrikes against Cuba's air defenses the following morning. Mm -hmm. And this had been a line that they had drawn. They had said, don't shoot down our planes or we're going to retaliate. Uh, the president correctly suspected that Khrushchev had not authorized the shoot down of the plane. And so he continued to push for diplomacy. This was an unauthorized use of anti-aircraft weapons that could have triggered an invasion and could have triggered nuclear war. 
Okay, I actually know much less about this incident. Yeah. It sounds like there's a lot of symmetries to the Alkapov story with the yeah. roles um, switched. Were um, Kennedy's advisors pushing for retaliation? Was Kennedy a kind of lone voice against that? So they had drawn this line. They had drawn a red line. Yeah. And the line was crossed. And so the default would have been to retaliate. And a lot of a lot of Kennedy's advisors at this point actually wanted to go in and invade Cuba and actually found the Soviet actions there to be a useful pretense. You'll recall a couple of years before, or it wasn't even a couple of years before, it was maybe six months before, the US had attempted this ill-fated, ill-conceived Bay of Pigs operation in which the US was supporting Cuban dissidents and exiles to come in and try to kick Castro out. Mm-hmm. It failed miserably. It was humiliating. But for many of the security folks in the room, this was an opportunity to finish the job. And so they were looking for any provocation to go in. Yeah. Um, uh, and you know, you, I think a lot of people at the time felt like the, 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 Soviet nuclear weapons were not operational and there would be no retaliation. Basically, we would be calling the Soviet bluff and there would be no consequences in doing so. Mm -hmm. And if that rings a bell, it's because we've seen this dynamic play out in other crises, including in the recent crisis in Ukraine, in which Putin has made a nuclear threat. He said, I'm not bluffing. If you cross certain lines, we will use nuclear weapons. And a lot of people are saying, well, that's just bluffing because in the end, he wouldn't dare to cross that line. The consequences would be too great. I see. This is the nature of nuclear brinksmanship. Yeah. And there's a lot of uncertainty. So you can see the patterns are similar across many of these nuclear crises in that you have people on the ground operating with imperfect information. Yep. You have leaders operating under great psychological stress, under time pressure, under political pressure, operating on the advice of advisors who don't agree with each other. And all of this is taking place in this fog of war or this fog of conflict. For sure. Yeah, I was thinking about what lessons you might draw from those near-miss stories during the Cuban Missile Crisis. And maybe one pattern which could carry over to, you know, present moment and maybe future cases is, like you said, at some high level, you have this kind of brinksmanship between major players. You know, you're kind of calling one another's bluff you're ratcheting up various kinds of threats um and tension along with it and ostensibly it's kind of you know these are like calculated moves on some big game board and then you know below that kind of high level on the ground as it were right you have all this like messiness and chaos you have incidents where people just don't have all the information they need and in the heat of the moment, they 
you know, there can be some provocation which maybe gets misinterpreted, um, rash decisions are made. And so you have these kind of two levels, maybe. One is the kind of this like very high level, you know, XCOM discussions. And then mm-hmm. on the other hand, you have all of this um, just chaos. They're almost like kind of, um, you know, kindling for that tension to erupt yeah. into something, into something um, worse. I think that's absolutely right, is you have, you have uncertainty at the very top levels of decision-making, and you have uncertainty on the ground level in which local commanders are taking decisions based on what they believe is the right thing to do, based on their orders. Mm-hmm. And yeah, yeah. both of those things can go wrong. Right. It's like, I guess on one level, you could just assume that everyone has, you know, no one's making entirely rash decisions. Everyone's got roughly enough information. Even then, um, there are risks from this kind of high-level brinksmanship. And then you add in this extra level of yeah. on the ground. People just don't, exactly. often don't know what's going on. Exactly. Um, and there's a, there's a third layer of risk, which involves technological risk. Right. Yeah. And that is less at play within the Cuban Missile Crisis, although you see elements of it in terms of um, inaccurate intelligence, right? But there is the possibility that systems go wrong. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do you want to give maybe one or two um, concrete examples of these kind of systems failures? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, a great book to read on this is Eric Schlosser's Command and Control. And he does a really exhaustive job in documenting and telling telling really good stories about many of these. I'm not going to to do them justice, but I would be happy to um, provide a link for your listeners. Super, super. I'll, uh, and, I'll include that. Yeah, that's great. And one of the one of the incidents that's most discussed is in 1983, the Stanislav Petrov incident, um, in which a newly deployed Soviet early warning system malfunctions mm-hmm. and indicates that a nuclear war is underway. And the colonel who is manning the system decides not to pass that warning up to his superiors where presumably it would have been acted upon. Mm-hmm. And because he believes he understands the system is providing a flawed readout. And that person is Stanislav Petrov? Stanislav Petrov, who was on board yeah. the, Okay. It's always hard to know with these stories how close we really were. That's the caveat I would, I would add here. But what I can tell you is that the systems and structures we have in place create opportunities for failure. And if we're going to keep running this back over and over again, if we're going to have more crises in the nuclear shadow, eventually we're going to get it wrong. Mm -hmm. I feel pretty confident that we can't just keep rolling the dice and expect to always avoid nuclear war. One thing I'm picking up is that in the examples 
at least the examples we've talked about, so um, Arkhipov and Petrov and this um, U-2 spy plane being shot down. Um, you know, in each of these cases, we avoided um, the worst outcome, but not because there was some system in place to make sure that these kind of small risks don't percolate up to the very worst outcomes. Instead, just because the right people happen to be there at the right point in time and just use human judgment. Yeah, um, we should not be relying upon that. You know, we need systems that fail safe all the time. And the, the risk of miscalculation or technical error, the fact that we could create a, a civil, civilization threatening catastrophe because of that, mm -hmm. it's just so foolish. Yeah, and if we survive this nuclear age, we'll look back on this and say, what were we thinking? Yep. Yep, for sure. I mean, it's easy to look back on something like the Cuban Mesar crisis and think that that is crazy if you hadn't mm -hmm. um, lived through it, or indeed the Cold War. Um, yeah. And then I guess there's some reminder that fundamentally the threat hasn't gone away like the level right. of risk might go up and down right. but um the, the fundamental yeah. course is just still here yeah and i think that one point i want to make is that nuclear risk during peacetime is very different than nuclear risk in war or in conflict and i think the chances that we will accidentally have nuclear use out of the blue are very, very low. But if NATO and Russia ever went to war, if the US and China ever went to war, during the very first stages of a conventional conflict, both sides would be seeking to blind and confuse the adversary. Mm -hmm. They would be taking out radars, they would be taking out communication systems, be taking out satellites in all likelihood. Mm -hmm. And our situational awareness depends on those factors. Mm -hmm. Moreover, there'd be incredible stress on leaders, right? So if the US were at war with China and all of a sudden China starts sinking aircraft carriers with thousands of sailors on board, the pressures for escalation are going to be intense. Mm -hmm. And there, it's fine to devise systems in the abstract that can withstand the pressure of a crisis. But when you're actually in that crisis, everything changes. And we've seen so many cases over the history of war in which one side or another blundered mm -hmm. because of a psychological failure, because of failure to understand the situation, because of technological failure. You think about just in Ukraine, right? Uh, Russia made a huge miscalculation in prosecuting that war that the way that they did. Yep. And that's why a lot of people thought that Russia would never go in is because it's foolish in many ways, but Putin did it anyway. 
And you could say the same thing about crossing the threshold to nuclear use. You could look at it and say, well, obviously no one would ever come out a winner in a nuclear war. So why would you fight one? But leaders make mistakes all the time. And Mm -hmm. there are certain psychological tendencies that we've observed again and again in human behavior. One of them is gambling for redemption, right? So prospect theory, Mm -hmm. Kahneman and Tversky, people value losses more than gains. And so if you get involved in a conflict that you're losing, you might take a shot to try to I see. Redeem yourself double by down. trying to escalate, double down, exactly. Yeah. Um, and that is one circumstance in which I could imagine nuclear weapons being used. That's a nice point. I guess that's related to this idea of a sunk cost fallacy. Maybe yeah, you exactly. feel like you've invested so much that um, you've got to keep spending until you get a payoff. Yeah. Um, so I think one of the big things, if you, you know, if you want to avoid nuclear war, the number one thing you can do is avoid war in general, avoid a great power conflict with high stakes. Mm -hmm. And that means finding ways to reach accommodations with countries that you don't agree with on all kinds of things, right? If you find yourself in that war, you better hope that you have well-designed systems and safeguards so that your nuclear nuclear systems fail safe 100% of the time. For sure. So we we're talking about points of failure. We were discussing how they can be failures of systems. They can also be failures of human decision-making at pretty much any level. Um, I figured maybe we could go through some other examples from history, which aren't so much examples of near misses or potential points of failure, but are more just like examples of contingency in the history of nuclear weapons. So maybe a point we can start with is to, I guess, go back in time a couple of years before the Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, there was this discussion about what's now called, the, um, if I'm pronouncing it right, uh, Ackerson Lilienthal Report, Yeah, um, which then became the Baruch Plan. I actually don't know much about this at all, but it sounds like a big deal. So could you take me through what was going on there? Yeah, so this is not an area of expertise for me. Sure. But it was an attempt after World War II to manage the threat posed by nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm. And at the time, people felt that we had crossed some threshold. Even though the nuclear weapons at that time were relatively rudimentary compared to those we have today, they had unleashed this new order of magnitude in destructiveness. And people could see where this story would lead if we didn't get a hold of it. So there were pretty serious talks from the start between the US and the Soviet Union about how to limit the spread of nuclear weapons. There was talk that the US would put its nuclear weapons under international control, Mm -hmm. and the Soviets would avoid developing weapons of their own and that this could head off what people saw as a likely nuclear arms race. What does it mean to put your weapons under international control? Yeah, well, that was the problem, right? (laughs) Is that, uh, you know, you have the United Nations was just established. It had very little capacity and neither side trusted each other. They had been allies of necessity during World War II, but 
mm-hmm. it was clear that they were going to be staring across the lines of this iron curtain for many years to come. And so you would need an incredibly intrusive and monitoring system in order to ensure that the weapons didn't spread and ensure that the technology didn't spread and that people didn't have secret programs. It was probably a doomed effort because we know that already the Soviets had espionage in place and just the uh, the existence proof that nuclear weapons could be developed mm-hmm. was enough to generate a lot of interest in them. Mm-hmm. And the crash Soviet program succeeded relatively soon after to the surprise of the United States and its other allies. So, uh, yeah, but one interesting thought experiment we might run is, you know, what if nuclear weapons were developed at a different time? Not in the, the wake of World War II, but in an era where you have greater transparency, monitoring, verification, uh-huh. s- satellite imagery, and, you know, a full suite of scientific uh, capabilities that just didn't exist at the time. Mm-hmm. And this is because I guess there was a limit on how easy it was to um, verify that I guess the US in this case was going to stick to this very bold um, yes. plan to hand over yeah. control of their nuclear yeah. weapons. If it were easier, then maybe it would be more feasible. Yeah. The Soviets never believed the US would carry through with its pledge. And the U.S. never believed that the Soviets would actually refrain from developing nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. So there was an incredible um, trust hurdle to to overcome. It's so interesting, though, that, that that is a hurdle which, in principle, could be overcome with technology, yeah. right? If you in principle, just yeah. Show it's like the demonstrably effective way of verifying these kinds of agreements. That just makes yeah. the agreements easier to to stick to. Exactly, and it's not like there were a lot of facilities around at that time. Mm-hmm. And there were uh, there was no civilian nuclear energy. That's one of the big risk vectors, as we know. And that wasn't even in place at that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, like a fascinating, as far as I can tell, kind of moment of contingency, as long as it, there was any chance that it could have happened, where, you know, if, it, if this plan were successful, then you would have... I guess kind of unique as far as I can tell this case where the United Nations um, this kind of representative of the entire world um, has some kind of overall control of this um, you know hugely destructive technology um, and like you mentioned probably was dooms but you could imagine tweaking some historical variables where it was mm-hmm. a bit more feasible and and, yeah. and could have happened yeah yeah, we, we tend to look at the world as it is and assume that it could not be any other way. But when you look at the history of the nuclear age, there are all these moments of contingency in which you see the possibility of another path not taken, sometimes for the better and sometimes for the worse. So I'll give you one example. We know Nazi Germany was the first country in April 1939 to start work on nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. Now, To put this in context, that meant 
that they had a three-year head start on the Manhattan Project. And the Manhattan Project only took three years to complete. So ultimately, the Nazis failed because they chose a particularly difficult approach to build the weapons. And because of the war, which started just a few months later, sucked up all the necessary resources for this nuclear weapons project. Mm -hmm. But I don't see that failure as inevitable. For example, had they chosen a different path and had they encountered early success, they might have started to get more resources. Or if Germany had not invaded Poland until a bit later, in this case, they might have been in sole possession of nuclear weapons, as well as the V-2 rocket. Yeah. So how might that have changed the outcome of the war? And another thought is, how might that have changed the way that we view nuclear weapons after the conclusion of the war? Mm-hmm. Oh, I think it's this historical irony that the Nazis started humanity's pursuit of nuclear weapons, but it was ultimately the use of nuclear weapons by a democratic power that was viewed as ending the war. So nuclear weapons emerged on the world stage as part of this arsenal of democracy rather than as the project of a fascist state with a death wish. Yeah, wow. And if that story had unfolded differently, I think we'd think about these devices very differently. Yeah, it's a really great um, example. Can you say anything more about, um, as far as we can tell, why the Manhattan Project succeeded so quickly like it did? Um, Was it, yeah, just a case of luck in choosing the, the direction? Yeah, a lot has been written on this. And I think that they had a really incredible team in place with just the top physicists of the world, as well as Leslie Groves, who was a general and could manage the operations really well. Mm. And they also, the US was not distracted in the same way as Nazi Germany would have been in its pursuit of the war. The US also benefited tremendously from the exodus of uh, Jewish Jewish and other scientists who were fleeing fleeing the war. And so that gave the US a huge, and and tremendous resources flowed into it. It's, It's still absolutely staggering to me that they were able to keep this project a secret for three years. It's like... That is extraordinary. Yeah. You can't keep anything secret these days, it seems. Yeah, that is wild. I hadn't really thought about that. Um, I mean, so when we're thinking about contingency, you know, you can imagine tweaking different dials on history, right? And thinking how things go differently. And you can appreciate how close we are to some very different worlds. One dial I was thinking that you could tweak is... A question like, well, how um, how easy is it to develop nuclear weapons in the first place? And it turns out that we're in a world where it was a fairly tricky technological nut to crack. And even when you crack it, you need 
um, quite a lot of infrastructure, like access to fissile material or to manufacture it um, and so on. I don't know, you can imagine it being a little bit easier to develop nuclear weapons. Yeah, I mean, there are, there are, there are, there are the laws of physics that mm-hmm. bound this question, right? But then there are all kinds of engineering questions that could make the development of nuclear weapons harder or easier. And one of them, for example, is the way that most countries in the past 30 years have sought to develop nuclear weapons is to use the commercial technologies that are used for making nuclear fuel to develop fissile material for the bomb. Mm -hmm. And because these are commercial technologies, because these are centrifuges, the centrifuge plans that AQ Constol mm-hmm. were from the Dutch Urenco facility, or the International Consortium Urenco facility located in the Netherlands, that was a really sophisticated approach because it was built with sensitivities to cost. Mm-hmm. You wanted to produce nuclear fuel at the lowest cost. So the centrifuges there are very sophisticated. They spin really fast. There's very low tolerances for any kind of error, right? Yep. Now, there are other ways to enrich uranium. And there are gaseous diffusion plants. And there are enrichment facilities that use shorter centrifuges that don't have to spin as fast. And if... If the AQCon network had been spreading around those plans instead of the more sophisticated Urenco design, okay, um, I see. It's it's quite possible that more countries would have had success in getting their hands on nuclear weapons. Does yeah, that that's, that's, that that does make sense. Absolutely. Yeah, I guess I was I was imagining kind of worlds where it's easier to develop nuclear weapons and i guess there's a sense in which well i mean that question's kind of determined by physics so it's a bit weird to imagine changing physics it is a bit of a silly question um but you can imagine this in the sense of what about future destructive technologies which could be uh, more accessible or easier to develop and absolutely then there's a sense in which the development of nuclear weapons that is a kind of a um story story we might draw lessons from for when we do this again with yeah, a difficulty seven right. turned up to 11. Yeah, I think if you if you look at the first 77 years of the nuclear age, they provide a case study in a particular type of technology that poses an existential or catastrophic risk to humanity. Mm-hmm. And the future doesn't need to follow that pattern. And if you look at biotechnology, for example, we can't draw analogies from the nuclear age in terms of trying to control the types of engineered pathogens that might be hugely dangerous to humanity. Mm -hmm. Um, In the next hundred years, nuclear materials may become much easier to develop as we have new types of advanced manufacturing. Um, If 
it's possible to 3D print centrifuges that work perfectly off some set of blueprints. You could imagine any country with access to raw uranium being able to build a bomb. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's the world we're going to live in. It's interesting that people talk about biotechnology and occasionally risky kinds of AI, and they draw analogies to nuclear weaponry and they say things like, well, imagine, you know, nukes, except you can build it in your um, garage in a couple of decades time. But it sounds like you're saying, well, imagine nukes, but easier to develop. That's that's also a uh, It's one worry. possible future. It's one possible yeah. future. Um, and I think that one of the biggest obstacles to developing any of these technologies is the human capital and having people who understand the mechanics in the case of nuclear, the, 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 the nuclear physics of it, in the case of bio, the life sciences and under, you know, it, there's, there's, it's, it's really hard to do because you've got to put together a team with the right competencies and Artificial intelligence is going to make all kinds of things easier in the next 20 years, including things that ought not to be so easy. Mm -hmm. And so if you are able to have your scientists and technicians supported by AI systems, you might need a much smaller team, a team with fewer competencies, and you might be able to do it more secretly. That's an interesting point. I guess the framing there to say it back is, at least before we develop this kind of transformative AI, well, the fact that these destructive weapons technologies require a lot of human capital is a kind of fortuitous fact because it kind of smooths out the speed at which you can possibly develop them. Absolutely. If we have... AI, which can substitute for that kind of human capital, then that kind of slow development doesn't look like it's a necessary um, limit anymore, or at least that looks that look like a possibility. That's right. The key bottlenecks for nuclear are the fissile material mm -hmm. and the tech the technical expertise, mm -hmm. and anything that reduces those bottlenecks creates pathways to developing bombs, even by yep. smaller countries and potentially non-state actors. Yeah. And um, since we're talking about these lessons from history, I mean, here's a really obvious one, which occurs to me. I'm curious what you think about it. I guess there are, you know, at least some cases, especially when we're thinking about international agreements like this, Akerson-Lilienthal um, plan, where you basically just need to be early in the development of the weapons technology to have any shot at some kind of um, agreement with teeth, right? So that, that I can say, the Lilienthal plan um, was drawn up at a time where one actor in the world had developed these um, this technology. It fell through, but you know that was the only chance they've already had for that kind of plan to work. And then the Non-Proliferation Treaty 
One of the key principles here is that it's much easier to refrain from an activity you're not yet doing than it is to stop doing something you're already doing. Once you've invested a lot of time and money and effort, and in some cases, political capital in making something happen, it's hard to stop doing that thing. And that's why we should be really careful about crossing into new technologies that might be risky because it's harder to walk them back. It's better if you can um, exercise restraint beforehand. Mm -hmm. That's an excellent point. And it sounds to me like a point which doesn't just apply to nuclear weapons. Absolutely. Um, okay, so we're talking about some examples from history. I'm kind of curious to cover a um, couple more if that's okay. Yeah, right. Um, so very quickly, a while ago you mentioned um, that so nuclear weapons, the development of nuclear weapons represented this kind of um, access to like a new order of magnitude of destructive capability. And I guess part of the nuclear story is that um, you know, let's say um, six or seven years later, that happens again, which is, you yeah. know, we develop the, um, the the hydrogen bomb. I don't really understand kind of what that means for thinking about nuclear risk. So I was wondering if you could say something about what that kind of extra step looks like and what it means for us. The development of the hydrogen bomb represents the crossing of another threshold. Because for the initial relatively simple nuclear devices that were built in 1945, there are pretty strict limits on the explosiveness you can get. It's limited by the amount of fissile material you can acquire. And it's a really difficult engineering challenge to get that beyond a certain level. What happens in 1952 is a new type of nuclear weapon called the super or the hydrogen bomb, which uses the initial fission reaction of a primary nuclear warhead to ignite a much larger secondary fusion reaction. Okay. And this is a case of really bringing the power of the sun down to earth. And with practice engineering, they realized that they could essentially scale this up indefinitely. There were no longer right, right, limits right. on how large you could make a nuclear device, right? Mm -hmm. So if you think about the device that was used against Hiroshima, that was 14 kilotons, 14,000 tons of TNT. It was, by some accounts, more than all of the conventional weapons used in World War II up until that point. It was an incredibly large detonation. Mm -hmm. But a few years later, they were able to build warheads that were a thousand times more powerful than that. Wow. And yeah. there are weapons in the US arsenal today that are a hundred times roughly more powerful than the bomb used in Hiroshima. Just this is maybe a bit of a side note, but I'm assuming the hydrogen bomb was tested in 1952 as well as um, built. And yes, yes. If so, was um, that was that the first time that humans had triggered 
a fusion reaction? To my knowledge, yes. So that's also just like a really significant moment in human history, right? Yeah. And also just the history of Earth. Like I'm assuming that's the first time a fusion reaction was tri triggered on Earth in this entire history. It's a yeah. real kind of like playing God yeah. um, moment. Um, if that needed to feel any more kind of uh, yeah. <laughs> serious. It's amazing how many of these fundamental discoveries have been achieved in the context of waging war or preparing for war. Okay, so since we were doing some kind of whistle-stop tour of, let's say, contingent moments in the history of nuclear weapons, let's jump ahead, I don't know, three decades or so, um, to this summit in Reykjavik, which I actually only learned about quite recently. So this is um, Reagan and Gorbachev um, meeting to discuss arms control. Can you yeah take us through what, what they were aiming to talk about and, and what eventually came out of the, those discussions? Reykjavik is so interesting because you have these two characters, Reagan and Gorbachev, meeting in a very simple and direct setting. This, I've been to this Hofti house in Reykjavik, oh, wow. and it's not very ornate or elaborate. And they occupied this same house together. In fact, there were so few meeting rooms that there was one of Reagan's conferences with his advisors that took place in a bathroom because that's the <laughs> only place they felt they could meet privately. Wow. Uh, so, so Reagan walked in and all of his advisors were in the shower and he, he looks over and he goes, sits on the toilet and he says, I'll take the throne. That's very good. Nice. <laughs> and so they had three days of negotiations face to face to tr at really coming off the height of the Cold War to try to figure out, can we reach an accommodation? Mm -hmm. And you have to remember the the story of Gorbachev is not what we know yet. He was relatively unknown and people didn't know yet whether he would be a reformer or if he'd be a hardliner in sheep's clothing. And he and Reagan had this tremendous rapport, actually. And they saw eye to eye on so many things. And so over the course of a few days, they were able to reach agreement on a few things. First, that a nuclear war could not be won and must never be fought. Mm -hmm. A really important insight. And Reagan, it appears, really took the threat of nuclear war seriously. It troubled him. Um, mm -hmm. And you can read his diary, right? And yeah. you get this impression that it's a real like, personal issue yeah. that's weighing on him. Yeah. Um, to, the, to the extent even that some of his advisors started to worry, like, would, would he be tough enough in, if a crisis were actually to come? There were a few movies in particular that mm -hmm. affected him, including The Day After. And he wanted to get rid of all nuclear weapons. He saw them fundamentally as illegitimate. And the analogy he said on several occasions, he talked about how if there were an alien invasion that 
all of humanity would come together to mm-hmm. unite and to defeat these invaders, right? And it was a strange thing to say for many of his advisors. So why are you saying this? They tried to take it out of his speech and he put it back in again. And he again raises this point with Gorbachev in Reykjavik and says, why don't we just get rid of them all? And Gorbachev basically agrees, but says, if we do this, you need to get rid of your missile defense program. Mm-hmm. And this is Ray, that Star Wars. The Star Wars SDI. No, this is a program that doesn't work, that even the people who are working on it don't believe it's likely to work. And yet it has become something of an article of faith for Reagan and his supporters. And so there's this negotiation that ensues in which Gorbachev says, okay, we'll allow you to keep these weapons, but they need to be confined to the laboratory, whatever that means. Yep. And in the end, the U.S. side does not agree to this, and Reykjavik falls apart. The summit ends, and they had this opportunity to agree to a joint elimination of nuclear weapons that both of them agreed to in principle, but it fell apart on some of these particulars. I remember reading about this, like I said, the first time only a few weeks ago. And it's so disappointing to read because it feels like we really did come um, very close to the agreement. It was not as if, for instance, um, as far as I could, you know, tell that Gorbachev wouldn't have never agreed to this kind of total Mm -hmm. deep proliferation um, and this whole like um, defense program detail was like a bluff. Mm -hmm. I got the impression that Gorbachev, like Reagan, really cared and and agreed that uh, nuclear conflicts could not be won and um was entirely open to this <laughs> this idea and it's one I think of these that's just right. like genuine contingencies in history yeah i think if it was up to just those two men it would have happened mm-hmm. and it's hard to say what would have happened next because then you would have brought in all of the military and scientific advisors to determine, okay, how do we actually do this thing, which is really hard to roll back in a verifiable way and eliminate these weapons, right? Mm-hmm. It's not an easy, easy task, even if you have agreement on it. Mm-hmm. But it's one of those moments where even if they hadn't been able to eliminate nuclear weapons, an agreement to move in that direction could have had this incredible, could have, could have pushed us so much further and uh, away from the brink. Sure. Yeah, what a, what a um, moment in history. Okay, so for context, we're now in part three of the recording in case we sound a little different. And if I remember, we were going through some moments of contingency in the history of um, nuclear weapons. 
And I guess we're bouncing around a bit. It's a bit non-chronological, but there was one more example I wanted to ask about, which is this story about how after Hiroshima, uh, there was a journalist called, I think, John Hersey, uh, who wrote about Hiroshima. Can you say something about that? Absolutely. This is a really interesting story. And it's a good book about it. It came out in 2020 by Leslie M.M. Bloom, and it's called Fallout. Maybe you could link to that at some point. Sure, sure. It's just, it's this remarkable story of how one reporter, John Hersey, revealed this government cover-up about the full consequences of the Hiroshima bombing. Now, Hershey had been an award-winning war correspondent, and he was writing for The New Yorker, and he went to Hiroshima after the bomb had been dropped. And this was a time when Japan was occupied by the U.S. It was administered by General Douglas MacArthur, and all the reporting from the city was tightly controlled. But Hersey wanted to get out and find out what had really happened. So he actually faked a stomach illness to sneak out away from his minders okay. and to talk to the survivors. And he put together this incredible reporting telling the, the human stories behind the bombing. It ended up being this 40,000 word expose in The New Yorker. And this was a time when The New Yorker wasn't known for its serious publication. It was seen as a humor and culture magazine. Got it. This is wild story how they kept it under wraps. And they had actually, the editors prepared a dummy issue as a decoy to avoid people learning about the issue before it actually appeared on newsstands. And what, what does that mean? So, like, they had a whole separate issue of The New Yorker uh -huh. with, with articles, cartoons, and everything else that the rest of the staff at The New Yorker thought was going to be released. Whoa. And instead, one day it showed up on the newsstand and it was like nothing that had ever been published before in journalism because it was just one story. Wow. No cartoons, nothing else. 40,000 words. And, and, and who was in on this at The New Yorker? Yeah, so it was the, the lead editor. I think his name was John Ross. And then William Sean was the editor who was working directly with Hersey. Okay. And I'm sure a few other people as well. Yeah. But that it was like a very small number. Courageous move. Yeah, exactly. And so why is this important? Well, the story sent shockwaves because it showed that the, the previous stories about Hiroshima weren't telling the whole weren't weren't telling the whole story. Mm-hmm. So contrary to government figures, over 100,000 people had died. And perhaps most significantly, it revealed for the first time the nature of radiation sickness. So the previous authorized versions of the story had focused on the size of the blast, but not on the human consequences or the way that nuclear weapons are different from conventional weapons. Mm-hmm. And one of the ways is radiation sickness. People suffer, and it has this long tail of consequences on people when, when there's really horrific stuff. And this caused public opinion about nuclear weapons to start to change. And the story had to be approved by the U.S. military. Oh, wow. And 
It was actually Leslie Groves, who was the general who oversaw the Manhattan Project, who approved the story with a couple minor changes, in part because he understood the risk that nuclear weapons might someday be used against Americans on U.S. soil. And he wanted this story to get out to show that these weapons are not just large explosives, that there is something fundamentally different about them. Mm -hmm. But it sounds like there are at least some figures in the government or military who preferred this story to be covered up. Yes. Maybe it's a naive question, but I, I'm curious about why exactly. Well, I think they wanted the weapons to be usable. Mm -hmm. And this is a time where already the Cold War was ramping up and the US had the monopoly on these weapons. And they, they wanted to tell a story of a, a heroic victory in which US military might and science had managed to defeat this adversary. And the inconvenient parts of that story, such as the, the level of suffering by civilians in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, those were not part of that story. And they wanted to make sure that the U.S. would not be self-deterred from using these weapons again uh, in the case of conflict with the Soviet Union. Got it. I didn't know that Leslie Groves signed off on the story. It's quite interesting. That maybe yeah. one of the people closest to its development. Yeah. Um, and I think uh, it's one of these incredible stories of how journalism can change the world, right? And you think about an alternate world in which Hersey didn't go out and do that reporting and in which Ross and Sean didn't decide to greenlight that story and in which Groves didn't sign off on the copy of the story that was to be published. Mm -hmm. It's a world in which we don't know about radiation sickness, at least not right away. Maybe I, I think eventually we would have learned something about it. Uh, we wouldn't have learned about the human toll of these weapons. Mm -hmm. and. You wonder how the arms race might have played out differently under those circumstances. Absolutely. And I mean, you know, it seems overwhelmingly likely that we would learn about the true story eventually. But it does seem to me like there's something kind of distinctively important about writing a thoroughly researched, widely uh, read, something like canonical retelling of what happens that basically everyone can trust and doing that shortly after the events. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Yeah. So we're on this this kind of whistle stop um, history of events in and uh, history of nuclear weapons. Let's race forwards then. I think we should yeah start approaching the present day and then we can start talking about the future. Um, yeah, something I just saw, I can't remember where, but there was this event in the early 90s where Bush removed tactical nukes from something. I hadn't heard of that before. Yeah, I wonder if you could say more about that. Yeah, so in 1991, George H.W. Bush, Bush the senior, decides after the fall of the Soviet Union that we don't need to have uh, as many tactical nuclear weapons. And he pulls them basically overnight through an executive order off of all the U.S. surface ships. And this is the single biggest reduction in deployed nuclear warheads 
it's done unilaterally. It's done with very little external input. And this is another case of a single individual and his staff making a very consequential decision mm-hmm. and one that I think has left us safer. Mm-hmm. And happy to go into that more if you'd like. Yeah, I mean, maybe just one question is, what exactly are tactical nukes? I have a vague picture, but... <laughs> ah, now that's a big question. And we could talk oh, about no. that for hours, oh, no. right? Is there, uh, it's not a, there's no straightforward answer, but tactical nuclear weapons or non-strategic nuclear weapons are usually, uh, usually is meant to refer to systems that are designed to be used on a battlefield in military situations. And that's, they're defined in current treaties based on their range mm-hmm. rather than by their yield. They do tend to be smaller yield, but not necessarily. So some tactical nuclear weapons are very small by, by comparison to other nuclear weapons. So for example, 300 tons of TNT. Now that's still a pretty big explosive. You think about the bomb that was dropped on Afghanistan, it was called the, the, the Moab, the mother of all bombs, biggest conventional dis- explosion ever. That was about 11 tons of TNT. So we're still talking about something that's about 30 times larger than that, right? But small compared to other nuclear weapons. And then some tactical weapons are very large. And so you might have tactical nuclear weapons that go up to 300 kilotons of TNT. It's 300 yep. kilotons, so basically 20 times the size of the Hiroshima bomb. Okay, that is that is confusing. I was yeah. really hoping it would just be a really easy, like, it's a difference in size. No, um, no. Okay. And On TNT it, equivalent, I mean, yeah, I um, maybe I can link it if I can find it on the internet somehow, but I, I stumbled on this article about trying to figure out, trying to get some intuition for what a ton of TNT actually means. And then what, you know, a kiloton of TNT equivalent actually means. Um, just because, you know, I hear that that phrase and I don't really, can't figure out how to map it onto anything in like normal experience. I found that really useful. And then also the article at the end, I think, tried to roughly figure out, this was when um, nuclear stockpiles were larger than they are now, but still was trying to figure out how many tons of TNT equivalent, um, you know, explosive force was there in all the world's nuclear uh, stockpiles per person. And it's like a large conventional bomb, you know, that could destroy a small city or something like that per person in the world. And I really put things in perspective for me. Maybe I can, uh, yeah, try to link it. Yeah, that sounds like an explainer someone should write if it hasn't been done yet. Yeah, for sure. I mean, when you just get into these kind of orders of magnitudes, like you've already got this destructive thing and then you're timesing it by a, a thousand and then a hundred again, it's just like, I'm losing track of what that actually means. Um, yeah. But okay, so I we... Think it, it, yeah, okay. I think it makes sense to go back to why these tactical nuclear weapons exist. And most of them were designed and developed at a time when weapons were much less accurate. Right. So if you wanted to have the, a chance to really destroy your target, you might need a u- nuclear weapon to do that. And what we started to see, especially demonstrated in the early 1990s, was that precision-guided conventional weapons can take out targets that had previously only been thought to be vulnerable to nuclear weapons. 
And that was something of a revolution in the way we understand military power. This is maybe a bit like weird or cynical to say, but is there a sense in which that is a kind of welcome development? Because I guess the more precise you can be with your weapons, the less collateral damage you're causing That's to right. non-strategic and target. Advocates of these programs argue that. They argue that greater precision allows you to wield a scalpel instead of a hatchet and to be able to take out military targets without harming civilians. Mm-hmm. In principle, this is true. But we also see that highly accurate weapons can be used to cause incredible harm. You yeah, see, I mean, I guess if you have a scalpel, you're going to use it more yeah. than a hatchet, right? So it's yeah, not exactly, exactly, exactly. And also you can see Russia, for example, using precise strikes to hit hospitals, okay. to take well, out yeah. electrical grids, to really impose misery and horror upon the people of Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it um, seems not at all clear uh, what we should think about that development. Yeah. Okay, so racing ahead to very near to the present day now. Um, yeah, I want to talk about the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. It was in 2017. How is that different from the other treaties that we've talked about? So the um, Non-Proliferation Treaty in particular. So we've talked about the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, known as the NPT. Mm-hmm. And that's the treaty that prevents the spread of nuclear weapons and promises peaceful use of nuclear energy and codifies five states that are allowed to retain nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. The TPNW is a different approach. This is sometimes known as the Ban Treaty. And essentially what it does is to outlaw the use of nuclear weapons, the threat of nuclear weapons. It prohibits their development and their possession. It ban- bans the transfer of these weapons. You can't station them on your territory. You can't deploy them. Basically, anything related to nuclear weapons, you can't do it if you sign on to this treaty. Uh And and how much of the world has signed on? Yeah. So about 140 countries support the TPNW, have either signed it or have said they plan to sign it. Okay. And so that's about two thirds of the world right now in terms of the number of countries. Mm -hmm. Um, If you look at the population of those countries, it's probably about half the world's population. Okay, got it. And I guess I want to know how like serious is this? Because I guess, you know, you can sign any treaty you want to make a statement about your intent not to use a nuclear weapon, but how is it, you know, enforced or verified if that ever becomes relevant? Yeah, so that's the big problem is that this treaty lacks verification and enforcement mechanisms. So on the surface, it doesn't matter, right? No state with nuclear weapons is going to join anytime soon. The nine nuclear armed states and their allies boycotted the negotiations. They pressured other states to abandon the treaty. And each of those states has nuclear modernization programs that are going to stretch on for decades. So there's no sign that this will lead any country, at least in the short term, to give up its nuclear weapons. And The skeptics of the treaty claim that it's actually worse than irrelevant because it's going to accentuate tensions. It's going to undermine collective action on nonproliferation. It's going to diminish alliance cohesion. It could 
potentially establish an alternative to the NPT. And they argue that we should not take any steps that might undermine the NPT because this is this bedrock agreement that for 50 years has helped limit the spread of nuclear weapons. Got it. You mentioned it might undermine cooperation. Um, Did he have something in mind there? I think that, for example, enforcing non-proliferation requires collective action, right? And if enough states start to see the nuclear non-proliferation treaty as illegitimate, the argument goes, they might not stand behind non-proliferation measures. Got it. You can um, tell that I'm a little skeptical at this point, <laughs> right? Because right. I, I think this these objections are overstated, right? We've always seen that collective action against non-proliferation is a challenge, with or without the ban treaty. Yep. And the treaty was pretty carefully drafted not to conflict with any existing non-proliferation obligations, Got it. including the nuclear non-proliferation treaty. I see. I am sympathetic to the broader concern, which is the treaty doesn't do much to reduce short-term risks. Yeah. But that's not really the point. Okay. Well, I'll ask you about that. So I can see the case pretty clearly that this treaty is not really doing much, or at least not likely to do much in the short term. It's not going to cause um, nuclear states to <laughs> give away their, their arsenals. Also, I can see the case of being generally skeptical about the long-term effects of a treaty like this, which is so mm-hmm. kind of hard line and unequivocal. What's the case for this kind of treaty? Why expect it to be worthwhile? Yeah, so I think it reflects a view that resonates with many states that nuclear weapons are inherently indiscriminatory. They are inherently inhumane. They have humanitarian consequences. And that we should not indefinitely accept a world that relies on the threat to do things that are deeply immoral and that contravene international law. Mm -hmm. And so for the supporters, the treaty sets a clear goal, the elimination of nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm. And the fact that it creates complications for some states that want to sit on the fence and say they want a world free of nuclear weapons, but continue to rely upon nuclear deterrence as allies of nuclear armed states, that's not a problem. That's a benefit because it clarifies the problem Mm -hmm. and it creates norms against nuclear use, including in states that might otherwise rely on nuclear weapons. Got it. So this is kind of norm setting idea, which I guess yeah. applies in other cases when you're thinking about um, international treaties. I want to know, so if you can imagine a world where the treaty on the proliferation of nuclear weapons that we're talking about um, just exceeds most people's expectations and spreads to many new countries. Like, What's the kind of hopeful um, future where we're talking about international agreements? I think it's hard to know what the future will hold. And if you think about how much the world has changed, even since the introduction of nuclear weapons and the types of cooperation we see between states, some of it enabled by 
technology and some of it enabled by shifts in, in culture. Mm-hmm. You can imagine a future in which we're able to resolve some of the longstanding, simmering geopolitical tensions and nuclear weapons no longer seem especially important and that they seem like relics of a past age. Mm -hmm. I want to be clear, it's not inevitable or even likely, in my opinion, that this is the world we're headed for in the short term. But to give you one scenario, let's say that the war in Ukraine eventually leads to the ousting of Vladimir Putin. And over time, he is replaced in Russia by a more democratic and international leaning mm-hmm. a cohort of leaders. Conflict is inherent to the international system. And we know that states will always have things that they compete over. But we shouldn't take it for granted that that conflict will always play out in the way that it has played out in the past. And you can see conflicts that occur between states in Europe, for example, in which there's no thought of recourse to war. It's just unthinkable that Germany and France could go to war again despite the fact that over a 40-year period, they fought three wars, right? These were rivals that seemed to have interests that were irreconcilable. And the world has changed for that part of the world. Uh, Similarly, in large parts of Africa and Latin America, the thought of a war between states seems pretty remote. Obviously, there are civil wars and other conflicts that exist. But the the idea that we would rely inherently on nuclear weapons and the threat of annihilating hundreds of thousands or millions of people in the course of minutes, that that is the condition that we're locked into forever. Mm -hmm. That seems really short-sighted. What if just the entire world was like, each each country had a relationship to every other country, which is similar to Switzerland's relationship with Finland. It's just like, seems a bit less on the table. Um, That's a very long way away, but you know, it's like, um, it's, it's a directional question and it seems possible to move in that direction, at least some steps. I think in general, war is a really inefficient way to solve conflicts. Mm -hmm. And so there are only a dozen or so conflicts in which war seems remotely possible in the world today. Mm. And so if you can solve for those problems, the chances of high stakes war of the kind that nuclear weapons would come into play just seems really remote. So there are these lingering, simmering conflicts that do have very high stakes, but if you could start to solve for for those, there are not that many of them. For sure. That's a great point. And maybe this is a topic for another podcast, but 
you know, especially if we're talking about great power conflicts, um, it's kind of like a bit obvious, but also important to remember that uh, these kinds of conflicts are almost always lose-lose and they're, they represent a kind of failure to reach um, some other resolution. And in some sense, it's like a theoretical question about why war happens as much as it does, given that it's always, almost always possible to imagine an agreement that if it were on the table, both parties would have agreed to. That just, you know, <laughs> doesn't involve such such loss on both sides. Um, but th like I said, that's, a, that's a, an entire different topic. So let's talk about, um, yeah, moving to a world where uh, nuclear risk is, is lower. And there are lots of ways we can go there. But, you know, one important force in, in making that that journey is philanthropy. Um, yeah, maybe a place to start is, I'm curious to know what the philanthropic landscape looks like with nuclear risk and how has it, it changed recently as well? Yeah. Ultimately, nuclear weapons are the domain of governments, right? You have a very small group of leaders who are making decisions about nuclear weapons that affect the rest of us. And the information around nuclear weapons tends to be tightly held and secretive. So in that context, you might wonder, what can civil society do? What can philanthropy do? What can citizens do? And I think somewhat surprisingly, since the very start of the nuclear era, civil society has played a really important role in shaping nuclear policy and in establishing what's possible. You think back to the Manhattan Project and the scientists who worked on that Manhattan Project and then who left and who raised the alarm about the direction that this technology could take right, right, right. in the future. Also, John Hersey, I guess we were just talking yeah, exactly, about. Exactly, exactly. And you think about the academics and analysts who looked at deterrence theory and arms control mm -hmm. and created concepts that went on to be used for the past 70 years. And a lot of times these are people outside of government who have deep expertise of particular sorts, whether that's technical or political, and can make real contributions. But there's also moments in which citizens and citizen activists and journalists can shape what's possible for policymakers. You think about mm -hmm. the test ban treaty was responsive to public concerns about nuclear testing. And so nuclear weapons are not just this alternate domain in which the public has no say. They are kept out of sight. Yeah. But civil society, I think, has a really important role to play. And there are a lot of cases in which philanthropy helped to create pathways to reduce nuclear risk. Got it. So you had to try to say that back. It sounds like Okay, lots of things that you can do outside of a government. Things like you can make contributions to um, just 
cutting edge of how we think about um, strategic considerations. Uh, also, you, as a scientist in civil society, you can um, raise the alarm or um, bring to people's attention dangers that people weren't aware of. I guess more generally, you can just raise awareness. Like if you're a journalist, for instance, like in the John Hersey story, you could also do things like protest and petition your governments to make policy changes if you think those the current track is is a dangerous one. Um, so that's kind of generally what you can do outside of government. But mm -hmm. what about when we're thinking about you know how to spend philanthropic money to make those things mm -hmm. happen? Yeah, how does that translate into kind of deliberate philanthropy? Well, so I'll give you a few specific examples. Yeah, so. In the 1980s, there were these exchanges that foundations set up. There were scientists to scientists. So you had U.S. and Soviet scientists meeting to discuss possibilities of arms control and risk reduction. Mm -hmm. And as the Soviet Union started to fall, the American scientists who were in touch with their Soviet counterparts reported a problem that they were hearing, which is there was no money left for the sorts of controls that the Soviet Union had on fissile material. There were scientists going unpaid, guards going unpaid, and this posed a tremendous proliferation risk. I see. And you could see the, this incredibly controlled infrastructure within the Soviet Union coming apart at the seams. Mm -hmm. And the risk that some of these scientists would go work for the highest bidder mm -hmm. or that fissile material would go missing, it was a really serious threat, but one that was not yet recognized in the U.S. government. Because of these scientist-to-scientist -scientist exchanges, they were able to raise this alarm and they were able to start some initial pilot programs to demonstrate what could be done. And by exchanges, you mean US scientists speaking to Soviet or ex-Soviet scientists and vice That's versa? That's right, yeah. Got it. Okay, and, and then what they happened? They had these, these, these knowledge networks that they had sure. built over the years, the levels of trust. And scientists speak the same language, mm -hmm. right? And U.S. scientists and Soviet scientists were had the same technical problems and some of the same bureaucratic problems. Yeah. And Stupid question: Were they were they had they built up this kind of network while they were you know opposing powers while the Soviet Union was still together? Yes. Oh. Um, they the the foundations started funding this work in the 1980s once there started to be a little bit of opening and a little bit of daylight in the Soviet Union and, and Gorbachev allowed it. Uh -huh. Okay. Yep. Got it. And then, yeah, so what, what, um, these exchanges, what did they lead to philanthropically speaking? Well, they led to some pilot programs, which eventually led to the non-Luger cooperative threat reduction program. Uh -huh. And this encompassed a variety of threat reduction programs in which the U.S. worked closely with the former Soviet states. And, and U.S. taxpayer dollars went to programs to help secure vulnerable materials, to replace gates, to put in 
modern material protection control and accounting Mm -hmm. to ensure that scientists stayed employed so they wouldn't seek employment in North Korea or Iraq or Iran, um, or that they wouldn't try to sell highly enriched uranium on the open market. And these programs also encompassed biological and chemical weapons. Right. The Soviet Union had a massive secret bioweapons program. I think I I remember uh, Andy Weber and others talking about his involvement. Yeah. It's an incredible story. He was there on the ground in Kazakhstan, securing some really vulnerable material, some really dangerous material. And then, so there were presumably former Soviet scientists who, before the Nanluka plan, um, didn't have a clear option, but it probably looked like working for the highest bidder, which wouldn't necessarily have been the the best place to work. And then what did they do once that plan was implemented, or at least what did many of those people do? It depends. I mean, there were a variety of different overlapping plans. Some of them worked pretty well. Others didn't work that well. But for the most part, I mean, we do know the results, which is that very few of these scientists went on to work in other places. And we don't know of significant quantities of nuclear material that went missing. Yeah. Um, There are a couple cases of of minor theft. And um, we do know some of these scientists ended up working in other countries. But for the most part, the programs seem to be pretty successful and at a pretty pretty low cost compared to U.S. defense spending. So dollar for dollar, I think this was one of the most successful programs the U.S. has ever pursued in terms of security. And it required cooperation, deep cooperation between these two former adversaries. It wasn't, wasn't easy. There were lots of legal constraints. There were political constraints. Mm-hmm. But- they found they found ways to cooperate and reduce this risk. Okay, so it sounds like the role of philanthropy there was to fund these pilots programs that came out of these exchanges between scientists, and then the U.S. itself, you know, eventually um, piled into this into this plan. So it kind of sparked this um, larger scale plan. Um, so I guess coming closer to the to today, what does the funding picture look like for nuclear philanthropy? Who were who were and who are the kind of major philanthropic funders? Government aside, obviously. Well, there's not a lot of funding, unfortunately, <clears throat> and I think there was a recent report by the Peace and Security Funders Group that put the total figure for all philanthropic funding for nuclear weapons issues at around $50 million a year. Uh And that's just not very much money in terms of philanthropy. Oh, yeah. If you think about climate change philanthropy, right? It's estimated about $10 billion per year. Mm -hmm. So we're talking 20 times as much money. And that's just the money on philanthropy going to climate change mitigation. That's not any of the... um, corporate investments, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, so compared to the scale of the problem, there are really relatively few people working on this. Mm-hmm. And 
the Carnegie Corporation of New York, where I worked previously as one of the leading foundations here. And I think they do great work. Yep. And until recently, the MacArthur Foundation was the largest funder in the world. Okay. Um, nuclear I see. Policy. So yeah, I mean, I, I heard that the MacArthur Foundation recently withdrew their funding that they were spending on nuclear philanthropy. Um, what happened there? Why do they, why do they do that? I think it's a curious decision, and in part because they hired evaluators to take a look at their nuclear work, and those evaluators found significant impact. But they also found that there was, quote, no line of sight to achieve the goal that MacArthur had set for itself, which was a very ambitious goal of eliminating fissile material. And they had framed up their nuclear challenges program to be really bold and to conform to a model of placing big bets in philanthropy. And I think that approach makes sense for some issues, but I think it's hard to make a big bet on nuclear policy because success on this issue is so contingent on other factors that are outside of the control of any foundation. And so in my view, the program was discontinued, not because it wasn't working, mm -hmm. but because it didn't meet the framework that the board set. I see. And I wanna be clear here because it sounds like I'm criticizing the MacArthur Foundation, yeah. but they have been the most generous funder of this cause. And they achieved so much through that generosity. And they have a really dedicated team at MacArthur that's worked with grantees and provided a three-year capstone project to support the field. And so in general, I think they've gone about things the right way. It's just unfortunate that this issue didn't fit the new framework of placing big bets. And there's a need for organizations and philanthropists to make a commitment that's not contingent on being able to show year over year progress. Yeah. Because ultimately nuclear policy is in the domain of governments and when civil society is effective it's often in at the margins or in in framing the issues that governments work on but it's very hard to take credit for any mm -hmm, successes. Mm -hmm. And so, was that the issue with MacArthur, where it was just, you know, increasingly hard to point to really concrete outcomes to, you know, the board or whatever, and and that just made it much harder to justify continuing along their, you know, specific kind of goal, which was getting rid of fissile material. Is that the story? I think it's part of the story. And if you think about philanthropic impact, there's a few different ways to measure impact, right? Mm -hmm. Now, the one that's easy to measure is if something wasn't happening and now it's happening and that's an improvement in the world, mm -hmm. that's a great thing. You could take credit for that, right? If there's a good trend in the world and you can accelerate that trend, that's a good thing. You could take credit for that. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, if you're facing a really hard challenge and things are getting worse, your investment might slow the rate at which they're getting worse, or they might keep really uh -huh. bad things from happening. Uh -huh. And so 
the the world is getting more dangerous, but the counterfactual in which you didn't invest philanthropically is even worse. Mm-hmm. I think that's the world we found ourselves in in the world we find ourselves in now. And so as a board, it's harder to disaggregate the impact of your work when you're seeking to slow or reverse a negative trend. I see, got it. There's this phrase, I'm sure it gets attributed to about a dozen people, something like, there's no limit to what you can achieve if you don't mind who takes credit. And I guess yeah. it's something similar here where, okay, what matters when we're talking about impact is is the counterfactual, specifically the counterfactual between you doing what you're doing and you not doing that. And is the world better <laughs> with you doing it? Often yeah. that does not look like some really obvious big win or something. It just means that the world is less bad in some respect. And it sounds yeah. like that is a real challenge when you're trying to demonstrate to a to a you know a board or some some body of people that you're making progress, right? Progress is often less obvious than you might hope. Absolutely. And I think specifically what philanthropy in this space can do mm-hmm. is to provide an audit of conventional wisdom mm-hmm. and to keep policymakers and governments accountable and to ensure that the policies we're pursuing make sense in terms of what they cost and what some of the second and third order consequences of those policies might be. Mm-hmm. Philanthropy also does an important an important job in terms of keeping lines of communication open. Mm-hmm. And there are times when countries don't want to talk to each other and that the, the political risks of open negotiations are really high. And philanthropy can create alternate channels. And you think back to the conversations between U.S. and Soviet scientists. Mm -hmm. Um, The U.S. government would have had a hard time going in there and having conversations with the directors of the labs at that point. Uh, The the Soviet leaders who are in charge of those labs were not going to open up their doors to the State Department or the CIA, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But they would be willing, the the the, the scientist to scientist right, communication was sure. able to reveal information that was helpful to both sides. And similarly, you know, when we were at a really dark point in U.S. Iran relations, the the track to diplomacy, these scientists to scientists and uh, former government advisor to former government advisor, these dialogues helped identify what a solution might look like. If we were able to, uh, if we were able to come to a solution, mm-hmm. this pilot program model again. Um, okay, so MacArthur withdrew their funding. Sounds like they were the largest funder yeah. when it comes to nuclear philanthropy. Um, we can dwell on why they made that decision, but I guess we can also ask the question: Why aren't there like five times more funders in the space, or at least five times? Um, as much money, it seems kind of confusing to me because it's not as if like nuclear security is an especially like weird or esoteric or controversial issue. Um, so yeah, do you have an impression of what's going on there? I think p- most philanthropists just don't know how bad the situation is uh-huh. and don't realize how important the marginal dollar in this space 
can be. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a function of a general assumption, which is that nuclear weapons are a relic of the past. This is a problem that we've solved. Mm-hmm. So some people have that view, right? And then other people have a view that this is just unsolvable. There's nothing that philanthropy or civil society can do on this issue. It's hopeless, right? Mm-hmm. And I think both those views are wrong. I think if you look at the track record of philanthropy for a relatively small amount of money, these non- non-governmental organizations, these experts and activists have been able to hold accountable governments under certain circumstances. They've been able to create channels of dialogue that turn down the temperature on some conflicts. So nuclear weapons are with us. And I believe that the risk of nuclear war has increased. Mm-hmm. in part because of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, but also as a result of technological trends and an increase in geopolitical conflict more broadly. Mm-hmm. And I think we are waking up to this problem that's been lingering just below the surface. So we are in a new era of nuclear risk. And the weapons are still here. They never went away. The numbers came down, but there are new risk vectors that we're facing. And the world of philanthropy has moved on. And Mm -hmm. that's really alarming to me because we need top not we need top quality analysis of how technological change and geopolitical change is shaping nuclear risk and we need to find some solutions i mean it sounds like at least a big part of what is going on here is some kind of you know novelty bias about the um the problem that you know a philanthropist might choose to spend on um and i guess in part because um we have avoided large-scale nuclear war the problem is less you know it's less like shiny now it's kind of it feels as if it belongs to history belongs to you know the cold war and um the cuban missile crisis and so on um that's kind of sad if that's true right because you really don't want philanthropic spending to be sensitive to these kind of biases it's really been 40 years or so since we had a nuclear crisis Mm -hmm. you really have to go back to the 1980s to find a time when we were so worried about nuclear war between us and russia you can look at more recent crises with north korea and i think People were concerned about those, but this is a this is a different world we're living in now. And so you have the people who are making decisions at these key institutions, both in government and on the boards of 
philanthropic organizations who have never seen a nuclear crisis before and are just not aware of the, the level of risks that we continue to run. So I think that's part of the challenge is that people are focused on the new challenges that have come along and they deserve our attention, but we can't take we can't take our eye off this nuclear threat, which never went away. Yeah, that makes total sense to me. Um, so I guess if we're trying to address that problem, you know, one thing we can do is to raise awareness about the fact that the risk is still with us, if it is. Um, but it also seems, you know, it seems important that there are actually plans that philanthropic money could be spent on to at least feasibly reduce nuclear risk. Um, so yeah, I, I'm curious to know what kinds of ideas are going around these days, which, um, yeah, could just be enabled by more philanthropic money. Yeah. I think our strategy starts with this view that this is a multi-generational challenge mm -hmm. and we want to avoid being encumbered by a business as usual approach. And so our first task, I think, is to fund research that helps us understand the current drivers of nuclear risk. Uh -huh. So we've seen all these big changes in geopolitics and in technology, but governments and NGOs have been slow to update. So some of the work will focus on looking at what levers offer the greatest return on investments. Sure. And alternatively, which developments we can safely ignore because they're overhyped. And the second thing is to really look at novel and practical approaches to rebooting arms control and to prevent the development and deployment of the highest risk weapon systems. We could talk a little bit about what the characteristics of those high risk systems are. Yeah, sure. Why not? I don't really know anything about that. Yeah. So nuclear weapons systems have different characteristics. And the ones you want to avoid are those that compress decision-making time and leave room open for mistake. Uh -huh. Systems that require delegated launch authority so you have more fingers on the button and systems that are ambiguous as to whether they are nuclear conventional systems. Mm -hmm. And these are the types of systems that are starting to be fielded in Russia, China, and the US. And it gives me a lot of concern. So take nuclear armed cruise missiles for example, right? Uh, you know, cruise missiles are low-flying missiles that can hit multiple different targets. And when you see the launch of a cruise missile, you don't know what its destination is going to be. So that creates a problem, right? It has target ambiguity. They also have payload ambiguity. So you don't know whether that weapon is carrying a conventional warhead or a nuclear warhead. 
So when you have these systems out in the field, you can see a launch and you don't know whether this is a potential nuclear weapon headed for a decapitation strike on leadership or whether it's just an ordinary conventional system. So avoiding the developments of those kinds of systems is is really important. Got it. It's really interesting. I think that theme has come up a couple of times um, in our conversation, this idea that ambiguity in the weapon system um, creates a kind of risk because if you are uncertain what kind of threat you're facing, then you might err uh, towards retaliating when you really didn't need to. Yeah, any other kinds of points on this idea of the reducing the riskier kinds of weapons? Yeah, so systems that threaten the survivability of an adversary's nuclear arsenal tend to be destabilizing because they will force an adversary either to develop more weapons or to devolve authority for the use of, to delegate authority for the use of those weapons or to shorten their decision-making process. Okay. What would be an, and, an example of that kind of weapon? Well, a highly precise, stealthy, either, either a, you know, a, a highly precise weapon, one that has very short time of flight or that is stealthy, uh -huh. and a targeting system that allows you to identify where an adversary's nuclear weapons are, uh -huh. those things are all inherently destabilizing, as are missile defenses. So in general, defenses sound like a good thing, but if you have missile defenses, that is going to be threatening to the other side because they will fear that you might be able to strike first and retreat behind your shield. And mm -hmm. so even defenses are inherently threatening. Got it. And are there particular kinds of missile defense that seem worth focusing on? Well, I think that the current US missile defenses are sufficiently limited that they don't actually pose a threat to the survivability of the Russian or Chinese arsenals and should not be seen as a threat. I, I think we've talked a little bit about the fear that Russia and China have that the uh -huh. US could take a leap forward in the effectiveness of these defenses. I see. And I think one area we might see that would be in space-based missile defenses, right? So okay. that uh, by putting interceptors in space, you could increase the efficacy of your missile defense system, but then you trigger a whole other competition in space in which the other side now has systems that they are designing and deploying to take out your space-based assets. I see. Anti-satellite weapons, I guess. Yeah, exactly. How exactly would space-based missile defense work? Are you intercepting ICBMs as they kind of go out of the atmosphere? Yeah, there, there's a few different versions of this and no one has really made it work yet, right? But you could imagine lasers in space requires a big power source to do that. Um, there's a variety. There are different approaches, but this is stuff that the U.S. is pulling off the shelf and investigating again. 
Uh-huh. Interesting. Also, just as a side note, I um, noticed that we haven't really talked about space-based nuclear weapons, as in just launching a weapon from orbit rather than from land out of the atmosphere and back into the atmosphere. Um, does that seem like it could happen? Or is it? Uh, yeah, yeah, I so guess why there's, it hasn't there's, a, there's a treaty that prohibits the stationing of nuclear weapons in outer space. Uh-huh. Um, so, as long as that's in place, it's not something that's likely to be pursued. Okay. It's also not especially effective. Um, okay. So there, you know, it was it was investigated and not seen as uh, you know an especially viable option. I see. But that but treaty there, doesn't doesn't cover missile defense systems? Right. Got it. I see. Um, there, there's concern that China might be developing something called a fractional orbit bombardment system, or FOBs, or there's another one called multiple orbit bombardment system, or MOBs. And this would involve placing payloads in outer space and could shorten the time of flight for a, a an incoming okay nuclear device so that's something that i think more research needs to be done on that is this something that china is actually pursuing and how concerned should we be about the potential for this technology got it okay so we've been talking about um plans to really focus in on limiting especially high-risk um, systems. Some examples are whether where there's lots of ambiguity, like payload ambiguity, like in cruise missiles. Also, if you have the possibility of um, taking out the adversary's nuclear capabilities, that seems especially risky. And then also um, defense systems that actually work an example of that might be space-based defense systems, but there might be other examples as well. So, yes, yeah, so I wonder if there are any other examples you can give which are, are different from that in terms of things you're kind of excited about philanthropy looking into. So I think one question we should be looking at is early warning systems, uh-huh. right? We have all of these early warning systems, and the current architecture is not optimized for reliability, right? Okay. These are systems that were built up over time, basically systems layered on top of legacy systems. They have radar, satellites, communications, computer systems. And again, they're, they're not optimized for reliability. It's a variety of trade-offs that were involved, um, including cost, including speed of deployment, and including how well these systems support non-nuclear operations, uh, conventional warfighting. Mm-hmm. And I think that if the U.S. were to take the approach to, to optimize for reliability of early warning systems, we'd spend a little bit more money but we would have a much more reliable system. So I'm talking about the U.S. here, but what I'm really concerned about are the early warning systems that might be deployed in Russia and China. We just have very low visibility into this. 
So I think this is an area for potential research analysis and contribution. Um, these systems are not going to change in the US unless legislators are aware about this problem and concerned about it. And the systems in Russia and China are going to be what they are, right? But if the US better understands the limitations of those systems, it might be able to avoid taking actions that would create confusion and ambiguity for the Russian and Chinese systems. I see. So that the US might aim to have some better understanding of other early warning systems so as to avoid some kind of outcomes which are really ambiguous or seem especially risky. Exactly. Um, okay, I guess, dumb question, but an early warning system, is this the thing which kind of detects that a nuclear weapon is is kind of heading your way and and figures out what to do? Yeah. So nuclear command, control, communications, intelligence, reconnaissance, surveillance, like all these terms are sort of tossed into this big basket okay, uh, with all right. kinds of different acronyms, right? Yeah. Uh, it's about trying to understand what the reality is. Are you under attack and by what? Mm -hmm. And then communicate that to decision makers in a really prompt and secure way so that the decision maker, in the case of the US, the president, has as much time and as reliable information as possible to make the right call. Got it. So it's not just like one, you know, one thing, like one radar system. It's this big network of it's a big network. Yeah. And over time, we're going to see, and we've already seen. Uh, artificial intelligence mm -hmm. and machine learning integrated into these systems in order to provide better resolution. Mm -hmm. And if it's done well, it will increase the reliability of these systems. The problem, of course, is that AI is notoriously hard to... It's, no, it's, it's not transparent. Right, famously. And, and it doesn't work as well on systems in which you have, you don't have a lot of training data, right? So I'm concerned about the, the types of gaps we might have as we increasingly rely on decision support systems. Mm-hmm. Got it. You know the story about um, the AI system which was trained to detect the presence of a tank in different photos? Oh, tell me about this. So, okay, details are very blurry. I'll, uh, I'll link to a proper write-up. I also think that the it's become a bit of a kind of urban myth and the real story is a little more complicated. Anyway, the story is um, uh, neural network is trained to on pictures with tanks in and pictures without tanks in. And the hope is that eventually it can, you can give it a picture and it'll tell you, it'll spot, you know, tanks which are cleverly hidden. And that's, that's a strategically useful, you know, capability to have. Okay, so they've, you know, they train this, this network and then they, they've got to test it, of course. So you give it a, a bunch of new photos it hasn't seen with which the researchers know have tanks and a bunch of which don't. And it gets them all right, flawless. So, you know, good news, present this to the Pentagon or whatever. Um, 
And only later did it turn out that the neural network was not at all looking for tanks. It was looking for photos um, taken on a cloudy day. And that's when it said there would be a tank, or maybe it's the other way around. Because wow. it just happened that all the examples of photos with tanks were taken from cloudy day photos, and all the others were taken on a clear day. And this wasn't noticed until very late on. And okay, maybe it's a little bit of a kind of oversimplified story, but right. this thing does this kind of data set bias thing happens, and it's one example among probably quite a few examples of the way that something which seems quite robust um, initially, because it's not very transparent what's going on, it can kind of fail, and it can fail surprisingly late. Yeah. And that's fine if you have a system and you can test it out and you can find the flaws in the system and you can correct them, right? Mm -hmm. But this is a system that if it fails once will have absolutely catastrophic consequences for humanity. Mm -hmm. And so it seems pretty risky. And at the same time, I think it will be really seductive mm -hmm. because of the, you know, especially as... AI is integrated into all aspects of war fighting, we will come to rely on it. Mm -hmm. And it will be just the way our systems work, right? Like mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's this old line that when AI stops becoming surprising, it just becomes software, right? Yep, nice. And all of our systems are going to be using AI in various forms. Some of it is more transparent and explainable than others. And so it's going to find its way into nuclear command and control, whether we try to prevent it or not. Are there any kind of more detailed or concrete suggestions for how to improve existing uh, early warning systems? Yeah, there's a few different proposals out there. and. We don't have a, a, a there's not there's not one in particular that we're pushing for. Um, one of the big changes we've seen in the past decade is the ability to send up a lot of small satellites at low cost. Okay. And this can provide a level of redundancy and resiliency uh, interesting. that would really strengthen awareness. Mm. You know, there, there are some risks and costs associated with that as well. Got it. But and these this, are surveillance satellites? He's like kind of looking back down at Earth and looking for signs of yeah. uh, attack? Exactly. Okay, yeah. nice. And just to give a name to that, proliferated low Earth orbit satellites is one technology that we'd want to explore. Got it, got and it. And certainly the... The Pentagon is taking a look at this as are others, but there's there's always a role for outside analysis, I think. Okay, got it. And then zooming back out again, are there any other um, ideas, plans that you're especially excited about when we're talking about nuclear philanthropy? I think it's really important to be open to international dialogue. And right now there is very little happening between US and China. Mm -hmm in US and Russia on the official level. On nuclear issues, China just doesn't want to discuss anything with the US. And the situation in Ukraine is really bad. So all of the channels of communication with US, Russia have been shut off. We know that there are 
are some quiet back channels that are happening, which is encouraging. But more broadly, civil society can have a role in trying to create conversations about nuclear risk reduction, even when it's impossible to do that at the track one government to government level. I see. And I guess maybe one example of that is the scientist to scientist communications that preceded Nanuka. Are there any other examples of what that could look like? Yeah, there's a number of cases of what they call track two diplomacy or track 1.5 diplomacy. Okay. Uh, Track one being official to official, track two being unofficial to unofficial, and track 1.5 being in between, right? It was really important in figuring out what the solution set to the Iran nuclear deal might look like. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's been important in some of the subsequent discussions uh, of follow-on arms treaties between the U.S. and Russia. And so this is a a model that's applied in a variety of areas, including on non-nuclear threat reduction work. Mm -hmm. Got it. And it doesn't, you know, it's hard, it's hard to measure, it's hard to attribute success in part because that's the, you know, the ground rules of this are very secretive. But it's important that there are these lines of communication. Sure. I'm trying to imagine, so if I am, you know, a philanthropist. I really like the idea of this kind of type 1.5 and type 2 diplomacy happening more often. In other words, people from different powers talk, communicating. Um, what can I do to make that happen more? How do I support that? I think it's hard to do it from afar. You kind of need to get into the weeds a little bit. Yeah, And that's why groups like Longview Philanthropy and the Plowshares Fund allow you to benefit from having some expert staff on board who know who the players are and can try to identify the best opportunities. Okay, cool. So we're talking about you know concrete ideas in nuclear philanthropy. You mentioned researching drivers of nuclear risk. Then we talked about just reducing the risk of nuclear war this decade. So anything else you're interested in working on? I think more broadly, we want to see a shift in societal attitudes towards nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm. We know that laws and values shape policy choices. And if we continue to see nuclear weapons narrowly through the lens of a national security issue, we are going to take steps that put us at risk. Ultimately, these devices pose a threat to our existential security. Mm -hmm. And we need to start thinking about how to change the way that these weapons are seen. So we talked a little bit, for example, about the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. That's one way to do this. There are others as well. There are zones that are free of WMD, right? Uh There are laws that can be passed. And there is work that can be done to shift culture. Mm -hmm. And so I think we're going to take a look at a few of these different options. Mm -hmm. But I think there's a pretty unique moment right now, which is Russia has invaded Ukraine and they've made nuclear threats in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. 
And I think this provides an opportunity to push back against that and to strengthen norms against nuclear use and nuclear coercion. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I guess to, to try summarizing then, so we have, you know, research to really understand drivers of nuclear risk. Turns out we just don't understand enough given how much has changed. Secondly, just reducing short-term risk nuclear war, reducing especially risky, or the chance that especially risky systems get used. Um, shifting attitudes we we're just talking about. Is there anything that we've left off, anything else that you're focused on? I'll just say that there has been attention to nuclear issues in governments, but over the past couple decades, the focus has been on preventing the spread of nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. So you see issues like North Korea or Iran sucking up all the oxygen in the room. You see a fo- and, and there's also been a real focus on keeping terrorists and non-state actors from acquiring nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. And so large portions of the field are still focused on that issue set. And those are really important challenges, don't get me wrong. But in some ways, we've lost sight of what distinguishes nuclear weapons, which is the, the, the potential use of nuclear weapons by states that have large nuclear arsenals uh-huh. would have extraordinary consequences for humanity. So you right now, 90% of the nuclear weapons in the world are in the hands of the US and Russia. Okay. And we are in a period of transition because China is rapidly increasing its nuclear arsenal. Mm-hmm. And by the best estimates, we expect them to have over a thousand nuclear weapons within a decade or so. Mm-hmm. So that's a major shift. And so you'll have these very large arsenals in three countries. And while the use of a nuclear weapon or two by North Korea would be devastating, it's not going to have the kinds of civilization threatening effects that a major nuclear exchange between the US and Russia or the US and China could have. Yeah, I'm curious, obviously, you know, zooming out of the actual content of the work, how is your challenge or the, the challenge when it comes to nuclear weapons, how is that different from your view to fields like biosecurity or um, AI safety and AI governance? I think biosecurity has a lot of similarities and that this is a technology that is dual use. And the worst case projections for what we might see in terms of engineered pandemics pose a really grave threat to humanity. Mm-hmm. And the technology is advancing pretty fast, which means that the barriers to creating that kind of massive harm each year are reduced. So I think this is an area that requires a lot of attention and investment. And I'm really glad that there is philanthropy dedicated to this. I wish there was a little bit more government funding on it, frankly. Um, I think it's a pretty sad state of affairs where you have a massive pandemic that just shows like the, the tip of the iceberg of how bad things might, might be. 
and you still can't get bills through Congress to do common sense things and increase yeah, preparedness. Kind of so that's really depressing to me, but I am, I have a lot of admiration for the work that I'm seeing within the EA community and other aligned communities to try to think seriously about pandemic prevention. And as you know, there's a technical scientific component to this, and there's also a policy component. It involves international governance, and it involves corporate acting actions. And in those ways, there are a lot of parallels to the, the challenge posed by nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm. AI is trickier because we're just on the cusp of this transformational technology. And there's really no consensus about what the level of risk is, how fast it's coming, and even whether there's a risk at all. Uh, we know that AI is going to reshape the worlds of business, the worlds of national security, but we don't know how. And so I think that there's a lot more uncertainty, sort of the 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 error bars, if you will, for what this threat might pose to humanity are much wider. Mm -hmm. And that makes it more concerning in some ways, because we have pretty clear error bars on nuclear. We know that a nuclear war would be really, really bad, but probably would not threaten all of humanity. With bioweapons, I think there's more uncertainty, right? Because the technology is evolving. But again, it's hard to imagine a biological weapons attack that threatens all of humanity. AI, it might not be a risk at all, but there are scenarios in which it could extinguish the human story. And also we have effectively zero true precedent because we're talking about something which doesn't exist yet, um, at least not properly, whereas nuclear and bio, we have at least something like precedent which we can point to. Absolutely. And I think the challenge with AI is to try to figure out what can we do now? Because the problem remains relatively poorly defined. Mm -hmm. So I really admire the work that's happening on AI. I certainly don't understand all of it. I think that there are a few different stories you can tell about the specific threat that AI poses to humanity. You could also think about AI being used to lower the barriers for the life sciences and to, mm -hmm. you could imagine AI tools helping bad actors who might want to develop super viruses, for example. The AI could be doing exactly what you want it to do and still lead to really bad outcomes. And a, another Another problem I see is around the surveillance state and AI-enabled authoritarianism. Mm -hmm. So my view is that we ought to be concerned about the direction AI may take us, even if you don't buy into this story of misaligned superintelligence. 
you mentioned surveillance, right? And I don't know maybe this is like a this is a separate podcast episode for for Luca and I to figure out. But I'm a bit surprised by um, how little attention this problem gets about how advanced um, surveillance systems could get, what they could look like. Again, you know, this doesn't need to have much to do with this kind of special set of worries about super intelligent AI. This is the kind of thing which you could imagine being properly worrying in five years time or even less than that. Yeah, I think you should do an episode on that. I think there are probably some really interesting people to talk to. Yeah, nice. Okay, maybe we should look into that. Um, okay, so yeah, another question I'm really curious about is basically just what drew you to this work in the first place? I mean, it sounds, you know, at times it could just be incredibly difficult, demanding um, work. Often, you know, it's really unclear what progress can look like. So yeah, just what was the story of, of how you ended up doing this? Yeah, I was a junior at Wesleyan University, and I was studying writing. I was very interested in journalism and narrative nonfiction. And I was taking a course with Annie Dillard there, and she said, you should take a course with Jonathan Schell. He's oh wow, an incredible writer. Uh, he's at Wesleyan this semester. Go take his class. And I signed up for it. I was the 13th person in a 12th person class. Okay. And Jonathan allowed me to, to, to come in and to, to join that class. And it changed my life. It was a course on thinking the unthinkable. And it was about the politics, the culture, the technology of nuclear weapons. And I felt like someone had pulled back a curtain and revealed this secret room uh -huh. in my house that I had never seen before. I knew about nuclear weapons. I had assumed, like most people, that they were no longer such a big deal and it's probably impossible to solve them. Mm -hmm. But learning about this doomsday machine that we had assembled and continued to operate was really this wake-up call. And I realized that other people were not thinking about this issue, and it seemed incredibly neglected and an opportunity to have a consequential career. And so I continued to study nuclear weapons, and I wrote my dissertation on nuclear policy. And I went back to grad school. I did a lot of other things in between, but I kept coming back to this issue because fundamentally, I'm an optimistic person. And I look around at the changes in society. Mm -hmm. And I think there's an incredible pessimistic bias towards everything happening in the world. But I think broadly, things have gotten better for more people in the past four generations. And most people have the opportunity to live a better life than their grandparents lived. And that has been true for some time. And one of the threats to that story is nuclear weapons. It's one of the ways in which things could go terribly wrong in the course of 15 minutes. And we don't need to continue to live this way. So for me, that was, it seemed, it seemed 
something worth working on. And I've continued to, to work on it for that reason. Well, that's a great story. I had, I had no idea that you'd um, been told by um, Jonathan Shell. I should say that, yeah. so um, I know that the book, The Precipice, was really probably inspired by uh, his book, The Fate of the Earth, which as far as I can tell was like really the kind of first first book talking about these kind of existential civilizational questions that are raised by um, nuclear weapons, in particular, you know, talking about something like human extinction. Um, yeah, I think it's a, it's a really important book. He was a great writer. You know, mm -hmm. at the time, we didn't know as much about the science as we do now. So uh, certain things in that book, he gets wrong, understandably. But I think the, the, the broad principle, which is that some, some technologies threaten not just people, but the human story mm -hmm. and threaten everything we care about for that reason. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This this That's kind important of, to keep in mind. This full stop at the end of a story which could have gone on much longer. Um, you also mentioned this, yeah, talking about how life has gotten better as a kind of motivation for making sure it can you know, keep getting better. I, I kind of like that. It's like a more hopeful framing, right? Like things things can go terribly wrong. That's still the case. But if they don't, it's also the case that things um, can go amazingly well or at least just continue to get better and better. And that's like also a motivation for avoiding these terrible outcomes. Yeah, I, this interview has been something of a downer because I'm always talking about things <laughs> right. I'm, I'm worried about and I, I, you must think I'm like, really a stressed out person all the time. <laughs> I don't want to stress out your listeners either. Like, because I think the, the risks of nuclear war are low mm -hmm. and that they are low because we've done a pretty good job of managing this technology. You think about 77 years living alongside nuclear weapons and the destructive power of even a single nuclear weapon and we haven't seen the use of a nuclear weapon in war since 1945. And the weapons have only spread to nine countries. Like, name one other technology that's that old that has not spread right, everywhere. Right, right. And it's a story that's about really good policymaking, about civil society, about international law. I just, I feel like we are on a path to managing these risks and to avoiding war and to avoiding a war in which nuclear weapons are used. Mm -hmm. None of this is inevitable. Mm -hmm. But we are much less safe if we stop working on these problems. And we've sort of forgotten that this issue exists for some time. And so we need to revitalize the community of concern and the community of practice around nuclear risk reduction. And that would make us all safer. This stuff is really complicated, right? But I'm getting some sense that like, yeah, there's a real like motivation of hopefulness, which is just some sense that it at least still seems possible to actually make things better and that 
it's not as if there is any kind of sense in which you know we're like just destined for for destruction in fact maybe the overall risk is actually relatively low over you know certain time frames it's just like we can make it even lower in that case the case you know the, the question is how much can you make things better rather than are we inevitably doomed or is this not a problem at all and that's the only option is right exactly um, and i i feel like if we fall prey to that dichotomy it's not a helpful way to to look at the world humans are inherently conflictual and they're inherently cooperative and we found ways to manage our differences and i think we're getting better at it in general mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the problem is that our capacity to do harm to one another has also increased so dramatically so it's a race it's a race between our tools to resolve conflicts and our tools to cause harm got it and it's a race whose winner is not yet guaranteed so um, there's work to be done um yeah okay so a question we ask all our guests is can you recommend three or roughly three uh books or anything else like films um for people who might want to learn more about everything we've been talking about yeah i'd be happy to recommend a few things so the first is this article and book Hiroshima that we've been talking about by John Hersey. Mm-hmm. And it's just an incredible piece of re- reporting. It's beautifully written. It's human. And you can access it freely now. The New Yorker now made it available online. So maybe you could provide the link to that. Absolutely. I think there are two really good accounts that are written by journalists about the nuclear age that give a very clear and concise and very readable picture. They tell great stories. One is The Bomb by Fred Kaplan, and the other is The Dead Hand by David Hoffman. And if you're looking for a very readable introduction to these issues, I, don't, I can't think of a better place to start. We've mentioned this book, Fallout, by Leslie Bloom, and this talks about the story of Hiroshima It's a really good read. It's won several awards. And I would recommend that to anyone listening to this podcast as well. And then there's a podcast series, which is really well done. It's something I actually funded when I was at Carnegie Corporation of New York, and I think they hit it out of the park. It's called A Most Terrible Weapon. And it's by War on the Rocks, which is an online journal, national security journal. And it goes in depth into some of these topics that we've covered. And I think it's just a very good lesson for folks who like podcasts. Most terrible weapon. Awesome. Excellent. Those are fantastic. We'll um we'll put links to all those all those things on our website. We've talked about an awful lot um in this conversation, but yeah, I wonder if you could throw out just, you know, one or two very specific or as specific as you like uh research projects that you'd be excited about. Maybe, you know, someone who's listening to this could could pick up and and work on. I think one of the big questions we face is how will artificial intelligence be incorporated into nuclear weapon systems and into the decision-making systems around nuclear weapons? Mm-hmm. And that's a topic that good work needs to be done on. Okay, and here's a, <laughs> here's a final question. I understand that you and your family... Um, 
took a family sabbatical. And I really want to know what that involved and should more families consider doing it? Yeah. So we just got back from a, a year of travel, mm -hmm. which we've been planning for something like 15 years. So um, before my wife and I decided to have kids, we took a one-month trip to India. And while we were there, we met a family that was traveling and they had three daughters. And they were just so poised and worldly. And we looked at each other. We said, when our kids get to be the right age, we've got to find a way to do this. Mm -hmm. And the timing was never right. And so we postponed it and postponed it. And we felt like we were getting to this window where if we didn't do it now, it was never going to happen. And so I actually left my job at Carnegie, which was my dream job. And we went on this year of travel and we visited nine different countries and lived in several of them for longer stretches. Uh -huh. Some of the highlights were living in, in Kenya, uh, outside of Nairobi, uh, living in Mexico City and Madrid, oh, cool. visiting Istanbul and Berlin, and visiting my friend in Egypt, and getting to see Egypt come alive at Ramadan. And it was just a really magical year for us as a family. We just came away with all these sort of family stories and, and myths and memories that are now part of our, it's part of our family story. And it was also, for me, a real opportunity for growth in terms of stepping away and, and trying to think about how is it I want to spend this next chapter in my life. Mm -hmm. So I've never talked to anyone who's taken a family sabbatical year and regretted it. Wow. I think there are lots of different ways to do it. We were traveling, we, we went to the Dominican Republic and we attended this world school support group that uh, helped people who are world schooling. We realized there's just all these different ways to make it happen. You know, some people work full time, some people travel on savings, mm -hmm. some people were able to make a career out of it, right? Um, and it was really inspiring to see all these people who were taking chances and trying to do something that is a little different from what's expected of us. And yeah, Love so, it. yeah, I, I, it was, it was a pretty great year. Are there any just, you know, if someone's like, wow, this wasn't, didn't feel like an option before, but I guess it's a thing that people are allowed to do. Any like resources, websites, books, that kind of thing that you could point people towards? Yeah. So there is a Facebook group about world schooling with something like 45,000 members. Uh -huh. And so that's a good place to start if you're on Facebook. Um, there's a couple books that have come out in this past year. Um, one was How to Be a Family by Dan Coyce, where he describes his family living in four different places. I think it's easier now than it has been. Mm -hmm. The travel is less costly in many ways, not financially, but in terms of being able to find reliable Wi-Fi and to be able to work from anywhere or to be able to educate your kids from anywhere. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so just the, the barriers to entry are a lot lower than what they might have been. Mm -hmm. um, 
If you want to make it happen, you can find a way to make it happen. I'm pretty confident of that. It might not be a year, but it doesn't have to be a year. You can do it for a few months at a time and see how you like it. Um, I think that our kids had some lost learning from what they would have gotten in a, a standard school with consistency over the course of the year. But I think the benefits of the perspective and meeting friends from around the world, many of whom we're still in touch with, yep. really outweigh that. Yeah. Love it. Well, I hope this conversation maybe causes a, um, a counterfactual family sabbatical. <laughs> <laughs> I will say too, it's really great for people who are working on abstract issues in which your day-to-day is something of a grind. It's hard to quantify. It's hard to measure progress. Being out in the real world is a reminder of all the different ways of knowing and being out there and is a, a, a reminder of the privilege it is to do totally. meaningful work. Totally. Right? And so... You know, we we lived outside of Nairobi, and we would drive through these tea fields and see the folks there who were picking tea for their livelihood. They weren't paid much at all, mm-hmm. and it's just a like a a kick in the ass to say, "Hey, I've got this big important project. If these people can spend all day picking tea, I can make some progress on it." Yeah, love it. Well, on that wonderful note, uh, Color Rubber Show. Thank you very much. Thank you. I really enjoyed this. That was Carl Robichaud on reducing the risks of nuclear war. If you find this podcast valuable in some way, one of the most effective ways to help is just to write a review wherever you're listening to this. So Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter. We are just at Hear This Idea. And I'll also mention that we still have a feedback form on our website. We read every submission. You'll receive a free book for filling it out. And you can find that on our website, which is just hearthisidea.com. Okay, as always, a big thanks to our producer, Jason, for editing these episodes. And thank you very much for listening.